Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the laughs keep rolling on as the Ballyhoo decides to give you a glimpse into the zany and daffy world of high society, the nuts that reside in this aristocratic nuthouse, and the compassion that can be found amongst humans all through the eyes of of a forgotten man with Gregory LaCava's 1936 production, My Man Godfrey. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Right down there, like a good girl. And in just a minute, you'll forget that you had any trouble. While you've been away, I've been doing some things also. I've been trying to do things that I thought would make you proud of me. Oh, I was proud of you before I went away. Yes, but I mean prouder still. You see, you helped me to find myself, and I'm very grateful. You'd make a wonderful husband. (laughs) I'm afraid not. You see, I know how you feel about things. How? Well, you're grateful to me because I helped you to beat Cornelia. And I'm grateful to you because you helped me to beat life. But that doesn't mean that we have to fall in love. Well, if you don't want to, but I'd make a wonderful wife. <laughs> well, not for me, I'm afraid. See, I like you very much. I had a very bitter experience. But I won't bore you with that. Well, maybe she wasn't in love with you. Well, maybe not. However, that's beside the point. You and I are friends. I feel a certain responsibility to you. That's why I wanted to tell you first. Tell me what? Well, I thought it was about time that I was moving on. God. Now, please. I won't cry, I promise. That's fine. After all, I'm your protege. You want me to improve myself, don't you? Yes. 
You don't want me to go on being just a butler all my life, do you? I want you to be anything you want to be. Well, that's very sweet. When are you leaving? Oh, pretty soon. But I'll call you up every now and then, and uh, we'll have long chats. I'll tell you how I'm getting on. Oh, we'll have lots of fun. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Four years after FDR took office and addressed the issue of the forgotten man, Charles Rogers of Universal Pictures inherited a property based upon a book by Eric Hatch. With the able hand of director Gregory LaCava, screenwriter Maury Riskin, and the scintillating personalities of William Powell and Carol Lombard, Universal unleashed My Man Godfrey onto a world still rightfully embittered over the financial collapse of the nation and the need to have more than a more than just one good laugh at the quote unquote social betters. Uh, a lot to talk about for just a screwball comedy, so we of course cannot do it alone. Thus, uh, we will introduce tonight's guest, who is a podcaster of great repute, who can be regularly heard on the Mandarian Orange Show. And Alex P. Keaton is my friend. He's also a former Shamley alumni who I believe talked about a great Hitchcock movie about trying to get rid of a dead body. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome Phil Vecchio. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, Phil, Phil, Phil. It's so good to hear your voice. It's, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to be here, as when always. The, when the last time we were talking, we were talking about uh, Bruce Dern, and now... <laughs> now William Powell. Yeah, now and well, not only William Powell, this is your second Carol Lombard discussion with me. This in, is, in, yes. In, in two years. Um, I think you're just going to become... You and... Uh, um, our second guest on the Ballyhoo, Ryan Frost, is a Carol Lombard fan too. So my, I may have to get you all together in a room at some <laughs> point and talk about Carol Lombard as a general whole. We'll go through her entire life, and well, we all know how that unfortunately ends. Yes, but um, yeah, she, he's actually. Um, I have Ryan booked to talk to be or not to be because he's never seen it, and the oh, reason nice. the reason why he gets exclusive rights to that episode is is because I'm gonna make him watch a Jack Benny movie come hell or high water. <laughs> <laughs> he ha- he has no choice. Um, but I sent out an email to everybody who wanted to be involved in yesteryear Ballyhoo Who Review, and uh, you gave back a list. And amongst the ones that popped out immediately was My Man Godfrey, which is among the greatest screwball comedies ever made. And absolutely, I'm very, very interested. So here's the thing. Because this is a new show, I do want to ask how you get into Golden Age Hollywood. But I also want to ask, when is the first time you see My Man Godfrey? Like, And I kind of want to know at what age. Because I do think that when you watch this movie kind of determines your ability to appreciate it. Yeah, so I, I discovered it as probably early high school, I'm going to say. Or possibly like in the 8th grade range. And... It was at a time when I was discovering that old video stores, this will date me, but VHS tapes, they would sell off like, you know, stuff they weren't using anymore. And I discovered the bargain bin in these. And unfortunately, (laughs) I suppose my man Godfrey had fallen into the public domain. And so there were like cheap, you know, 50 cent copies of it everywhere. And I had 50 cents. And so I'm like, oh, I'll pick it up. I, you know, I would, I would grab armloads of it just to see, you know, well, you know, what sticks. Right. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. You, you, um, you, you pick through a bundle and then you sift through it like bit by bit. I I did that more than once with Grindhouse. (laughs) This is not not Golden Age Hollywood, but Grindhouse movies. You just buy those like freaking 20 packs. (laughs) It's a great way to discover stuff that, you know, I mean, 
there's a reason it was put on the video, so let's find out why. So yeah. I, I found it, and, and I guess, unfortunately, because it was my first experience with it, it was a very, very, like, worn-down copy of a really bad transfer of this mm-hmm. movie. And so uh, as much as I, I wound up loving it right away, I did not have a very good experience with the film itself until uh, much later okay. uh, when I acquired better copies. I loved it. I watched it over and over again, but there were parts of the movie that I didn't even know what they were saying because it was such a poor transfer. Yeah, so not only did it affect the picture, it affected the sound as well, which yeah holds water. I think it's funny because we were talking about bootleg and uh, public domain prints when we discussed The Farmer's Wife um, mm-hmm. uh, on the Shamley episode, which since since we've had that discussion, I've, I've come to this weird conclusion where... Um, uh, some of the research that I've had to do for projects outside of this podcast have required me to watch prints that are sadly not in the best condition, even though they're being released by an MOD label of a studio. Um, this is going to sound um, interest uh, or interesting slash boring, but um, <laughs> the um, one of the uh, films that I had to watch for research is called Artists and Models. It's from 1936 as well. And for whatever reason, I've never seen this before, but TCM Archives is what put it out. And they put it okay. out through – it's a Universal movie because it was it's a Paramount film that Universal bought when they when MCA had that big sale. Um, and uh, the uh, they had a thing up at the front, which I have never seen before, which it says that due to deterioration, certain elements of this film – are being presented in the best possible quality that can be found at this time. So it hmm. taught it taught me that a lot of the fil- some of the films that we see right now, if they're in that condition and they haven't been released yet, it's because that's all that's available right now. Period, which yeah. is disheartening to say the least. Thankfully, my man Godfrey does not have that same story, um, because now uh, it is in the public domain still, or at least there's a claim that it's in the public domain. There's also a claim that the author of the original source material has a claim on the copyright. And so therefore universal can still sell it, but also public and domain can sell it. it it's, right. it's kind of weird. It's almost similar to how his girl Friday and the uh, one it's a wonderful life ran in a couple circles for a little bit. But um, this, uh, this particular film now you have a lot of options. You've got a DVD from Criterion. You've got a Blu-ray from Criterion. And in 2005, you had 20th Century Fox home video for some reason releasing a color version. So I don't, (laughs) which is the, you know, like there are days when I lament that studio's demise. And then I see stuff like this and I'm like, maybe it was time. (laughs) It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't care. Give me more Mandalorian. I don't care. I finally, yeah. By the way, listeners, as of now, I've started watching the Mandalorian and, I get it. I totally fucking get it. Boba Fett's not cool, but Mando is cool. <laughs> it's fin- Did you finish the whole thing? Not yet. I'm on episode. I just finished episode six, The Prisoner. Okay. Uh, and, well, I won't um, say anything then, but it's it's great. Some of, some of it's already been spoiled for me, so I'm already kind of going in like in a Hitchcock element. Like, look, somebody already told me, you know, what happens <laughs> to the Mandalorian, but now I'm going to see it, see the suspense of how we get there. Um, uh, but I, I'll tell you, like, um, I heard complaining about Bill Burr being on that show, and I watched that episode, and I'm like, he's fine. Stop whining. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> he's a Boston boy in space. I love this. Um, they work great. Um, and I and I've come to the conclusion, Phil, that if I don't see 
that baby fly his ship. I want him to pilot that damn ship wearing a backward cap, sunglasses, and cranking ACDC as he elu- <laughs> as he evades Werner Herzog. That's I think I'm owed this after Rise of Skywalker. I think I'm owed this. <laughs> um, but we're not How great here. is it that I, Werner Herzog is in it? I mean, oh, that right there oh, puts it up in a whole other echelon. Oh, oh my god. I I I the moment I heard him say say Star Wars stuff, <laughs> yeah. I I immediately posted. I'm like, this is the thing I needed two years ago and didn't realize I needed two years ago. It's it's almost because the first impression in my head is, why are you here? And then as soon as he starts saying nonsense dialogue from Star Wars universe, I'm like, oh, you've belonged here the whole time. Yep, this is it. <laughs> He's home. This is. Le- <laughs> Chewy, we're home. We're home. <laughs> oh, you're you're as big as the bear that ate Timothy Treadwell. <laughs> but you have a bowcaster. <laughs> Isn't that delightful? <laughs> we are. We could talk about the Mandalorian for hours, but we're not here to do that. We're that's to, right. That's we're right. We're here to talk about another dashing hero named William Powell. <laughs> Absolutely. Um. So this is actually William Powell's debut on uh the Bester Year Ballyhoo review. I initially thought it would be via a Thin Man movie, but I there's a part of me that's withholding doing the Thin Man series because I want to establish a way to do each in the series because as you go through the Thin Man series, they technically they get worse. But I love each and every one of them for different reasons. Um, so it's like it's it's uh, that syndrome of like no matter how strained the plots get, I can still enjoy watching Nick and Nora solve a mystery. Um, yeah. Uh, but this is actually coming coming after my man Godfrey, uh, um, uh, or before my man uh, Thin Man comes before my man Godfrey. Right. Powell is already a star at MGM at this point, and he had to get loaned out for this movie. Um, and in order to kind of like talk a little bit about that, um, we'd have to. Uh, talk a little bit about the director of the film now. Uh, what do you know of any other Gregory Gregory Lacava films, uh, Phil? Yeah, I mean, I you know just kind of reviewing everybody in this thing. He he directed Topper, I believe. Um, I'm pulling it up right now. Um, because I have a list of his um. His, no, so no, he didn't direct Topper. No, um, no, but um, I was gonna, I was gonna tell you. Did you know he's the reason we have W. C. Fields the way we have him? Oh yes. Okay, I was confused. The writer wrote Topper. That's yes. what. I, that's where I had it mixed up. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. No, no, you're totally fine. No, it's totally cool. Um. Uh. But here's the thing about Gregory Lacava. He's kind of secretly responsible for some classic stuff incidentally hmm. while still making classics. Um, the, how he gets to this point is he, st- first he starts off, he's, uh, he's born in Pennsylvania. He studies at the art Institute of Chicago. Uh, and then in 1913, he starts doing jobs for Raoul Berry um, at, a, at one of the studios in New York. And he becomes an animator um, on a series called the Animated Grouch Chasers, <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, the 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 thing to keep in mind with uh, animation in the early teens is that they are primarily animations based off of newspaper cartoons. So Windsor McKay and Gertie the Dinosaur. This is what we're talking about. Right, very right. early, very early animation. Um, you have Bud Fe- uh, Bud Fisher. 
um, doing the Mutt and Jeff series at Fox. Um, and in this sphere, LaCava is just one of those animators out there. Now, at the end of 1915, um, a very powerful, uh, powerful news baron by the name of Charles Foster Kane. I'm sorry, William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> Uh, was getting very petty over the success that uh, people like McKay and the Bud Fisher studio were having. And he uh, he he basically uh, did a um, uh, 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 what do you call it? Um, he would scour. He was scouring studios and collecting um, animators for his service, International Film Service, which is obviously the most clever name ever devised for a film distribution company like it's pretty on the nose it's it's very much shell company shell company shell company <laughs> um and uh, he hired lacava to run it um and then eventually lacava gets into directing by directing um uh, uh comedy shorts and then from there he works his way up virtually alongside folks such as Leo McCary and Frank Capra. And these are three directors who we've already discussed one of them before with the awful truth. Mm -hmm. um, but um, we haven't discussed Capra yet, but don't worry. I'm sure he'll pop up somewhere. You'll get like, there. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> it's almost as if you can't avoid that. He had what some would say a wonderful life. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm never going to do that kind of thing ever <laughs> again. Um he uh he he uh uh he did a chick sale film first which is one of those early efforts and then he becomes this comedy director because he has this cartoon background, he's kind of set up to know how a gag is set up and how it works. Um so he understands visual comedy as well as an inherent you know uh knowledge of how dialogue comedy can work um so he one of the things that he does as he moves along so capra ends up helping out other comedians as well in this way he gets partnered with wc fields in two very key wc field films which is soldier old man and running wild and W.C. Fields, having worked in vaudeville for years and building up a persona, these two films help clarify that persona, which is henpecked weirdo, <laughs> um, <laughs> wandering around stupid drunk, hating kids and dogs. Like, this is the W.C. This is what you all love about me. Oh, oh, oh excuse me. Um that's this is the WC Fields we all know and love. It starts with Gregory Gregory Lacava working on it, um, and then he worked his way up to features in the silent era. But sound is where he starts getting his uh, chops, and that's where he starts really becoming a known director. Um, in the early years leading up to uh, my man Godfrey, he makes films like The Age of Consent, Symphony of Six Million, Bed of Roses. Gabriel over the White House with Walter Houston, um, who I'm sure will be discussed in the future. Um, and um, What Every Woman Knows, The Affairs of Kalini, Private Worlds, and one of his three big classics in this particular vein, uh, She Married Her Boss with Claudette Colbert and Melvin Douglas. Now, he liked working, amongst other people, with Constance Bennett. Um, he had collaborated with her in prior... Um, 
scenarios with the affairs of Kalini and Bed of Roses. Um, and he also clearly liked working with Colbert. But uh, when he gets to do My Man Gottfried, um, he at this point he is very much a studio for a, a, a director for hire. He never hmm. sits in one studio for too long. Basically, from the from the output, it looks like he stays at them for two pictures and then leaves, um, because uh, he comes over to Universal from Columbia, uh, where Columbia is where he made she's her bo- she married her boss. Now they're gonna make my man Godfrey. He wants William Powell, and the assumption might be that well you'll you'll get your your regular collaborator like Constance Bennett or Claudette Colbert over, but William Powell was insistent that they cast Carol Lombard, um, and Carol Lombard, uh, arguably has one of those interesting careers in the respect that she doesn't become a um a comedy goddess overnight. She starts off primarily in dramas. Um, and she married William Powell in 1931, but they divorced um, amicably uh, two years later. Um, and then in 1934, she gets this big, big, big turning point in her career with 20th Century by Howard Hawks uh, with John Barrymore. And then she starts appearing in films like Hands Across the Table. Then she gets into My Man Godfrey, I think Powell clearly knew that he could work off of his ex-wife very well in a film like My Man Godfrey. Um, well, and their their chemistry is undeniable in this. It is, it, it it couldn't have worked with any other pair. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. There is no, um, there is there is virtually no uh, imperfect moment in this movie. Thanks to those two. I mean, actually, I take that back. The entire cast of this film is nothing short of perfect. Um, And that's a credit to LaCava knowing where to cast people and get people involved in this kind of production. Um, And Rogers, Charles Rogers, the producer, we should talk a little bit about him before we get into the full casting uh, kerfuffle of this because Charles Rogers is inheriting Universal Pictures because Universal Pictures had defaulted on a loan because they were finishing up, amongst other things, Showboat um, and The Road Back. And Showboat did not do well. A lot of their output did not do well. And by the time Showboat had come out and was able to make money, it was too late. Mm-hmm. And another and the, and the Lemleys were out of Universal. The bank now owned it. And these people now suddenly don't know how to run a fucking studio. Um, and so they're kind of throwing things up against the wall and Rogers inherits my man Godfrey, which is based on a book. He inherits this property from Carl Lemley Jr. Um, I would say if you want more information on Universal's uh, position at this point, um, I know I plug this nearly every episode, but you should listen to a universe of horrors from secret history of Hollywood. There's a lot more clarification as to why the Lemleys couldn't hold on to the studio that they founded. But a lot of it had to do with one of them is, is that Universal is technically like a low level, low budget studio. It was it made like a few prestige pieces, but its primary output was cheapies, um, primarily Westerns. If you look at the quality of the production on a Universal film versus an MGM or even a 20th Century Fox or even a Warner Brothers, 
the difference is there. The reason they get away with it in horror movies is because you're using expressionism, you're using shadows, you can hide right. some stuff. Right. Um, and also, let's face it, you're looking at those monsters. Um, right. <laughs> you know, you're too scared to realize that Boris Karloff just walked into a cardboard wall. <laughs> um, uh, but the studio at this time did not have anybody major under their belt, apart from Buck Jones, Boris Karloff, and Edward Everett Horton, none of which are in this movie, although I would argue Edward Everett Horton could have been in this movie, um, but they needed to get people from other studios. Their original choice for um, uh, Irene, again, was Constance Bennett, but Miriam Hopkins was also considered. Um, but uh, LaCava would only agree to Bennett if Universal borrowed Powell from MGM, and then Powell was the one who said, like, no, 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 no. Constance is nice, but what if Carol? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so, the, but, so uh, uh, an agreement is settled. They also round up the rest of this entire cast, which I'm going to do the cast listing now. We've got William Powell, Carol Lombard, Alice Brady, Gail Patrick, Gene Dixon, Eugene Paulette, Alan Mowbray, Misha Hour, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pat Flaherty, and I didn't realize this until looking into research. Apparently, Jane Wyman's in this film as an uncredited socialite. Um, <laughs> so this is clearly a Jane Wyman role where she's just like, look, just just keep digging. Just keep digging your trenches, and then one day you'll marry a guy who may become president. Maybe. <laughs> um, but right now he's just a guy who acts with monkeys and loses his legs in King's Row. Um, uh, but you also have Franklin Pangborn in this movie, and we'll get to him because I love Franklin Pangborn. And he hasn't been talked about on this show, but he's fucking everywhere. <laughs> you, you know Franklin Pangborn even if you don't think you know Franklin Pangborn. Um, sometimes you don't know Jack, but you know Franklin. You know Franklin. Yes, exactly. This is this is why this is why I agreed to do this episode, Phil. It had nothing to do with Powell <laughs> Lombard. It had everything to do with dear old Pangborn and possibly and possibly Misha Hour because we're gonna talk about him. <laughs> oh, money, money, money. Oh God, oh, the Frankenstein monster that steals men's souls. <laughs> but um, but the movie. Moves into production uh, from April 15th until May 27th in 1936. With a bit of retakes done in June, it was budgeted at $575,375. Um, Powell was paid $87,000 and Lombard $45,000. So uh, pay disparagement. Um, but again, that, yeah, slightly. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could say that was of the era, but it's an ever long thing. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, but uh, any. Anyway, uh, LaCava, though, being brought into this, something that LaCava brings into this film that he also brings into the majority of his films is a distinct idea that classism is hilarious. Um, and by hilarious, I mean he finds the idea of an upper class silly. And it's very evident in this film. It's also evident in films like Stage Door, uh, and Fifth Avenue Girl, and uh, she married her his, she married her boss. Th this guy liked to poke his little stick at the rich, and I love him for it. <laughs> now there is some criticism that Lacava does not stick to his guns by the time the films end, but we're gonna be the judges of that ourselves. Um, but we also should talk a little bit about Maury Riskin. Now, Phil. 
do you know much about Maury Briskind? I don't know much other than I know he worked with uh, a famous set of brothers, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, yes. The Ritz <laughs> brothers. No, no, no. Not the Ritz brothers. Not the Slate brothers either. The Marx brothers. Yes. Harpo, Harpo, Chico, Groucho, and sometimes Zeppo. Um, uh, and he... the. His key contribution, we talked about this on the last episode, but I want to give a refresher because last week's episode was talking about Jack Benny. This week we're talking about a movie. And <laughs> and Maury Riskin is so much more than that one Jack Benny movie that he wrote. Um, he did he was the he did the adaptations for the coconuts and animal crackers. And I I um undeniably uh he is amongst the ways that the Marx Brothers developed their cinematic style. One, it comes from dialogue, but two, it also comes from what position they're in at this point. Coconuts and Animal Crackers are stage plays, and Riskind was actually trying to insert more music in things like Animal Crackers, but then Victor Herman, the director, had him back off. But Riskind was a a master with dialogue. Another thing that he also worked on uh, with... Um, within the guards of the Marx Brothers oeuvre is a production called Of the Icing, which was supposed to be a Marx Brothers movie until they couldn't get the financing for it, and so they went back to Paramount to make Duck Soup. Hmm. Um, but Riskind is, again, much more than just the brothers himself. Um, he wrote Stage, Stage Door for La Cava, which got him an Oscar nomination, and this is the year after Godfrey. Um, he also worked on Room Service a little bit, which is a Marx Brothers movie that is uh, decidedly different because it wasn't supposed to come out that way. Um, and then Man About Town, which we talked about last week, His Girl Friday, uh, Penny Serenade, Claudia, Where Do We Go From Here, and It's in the Bag. So he has a, 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 a an astounding stack of comedy credits, few as they are. Um, he's also a... Um, the, I'm bringing this up only because it's relevant to what we're talking about right now um, with the discussion of class and also just the state of the world at this particular point when Godfrey is released. Um, he ended up becoming a conservative political activist. <laughs> Hmm. And um, now that's not that's not to pigeonhole anybody in the listening audience. The reason why I'm bringing it up is because he didn't start off that way. In fact, when you watch something like My Man Godfrey, it is decidedly dipping its toe into socialist waters. Um, and that's and 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 if you want to know the difference between communism and socialism, you should watch Mank because it explains it more than fine. And if you've got Netflix, it's free. Um, <laughs> so, um, but long story short, like the the reason why it's interesting that he ends up going this route, which could be the result of his of, of an experience during World War II or just changing attitude or getting ageful. Um, at the time that he's writing My Man Godfrey, the the country is still in the Great Depression. Um, the uh, WPA and the National Recovery Act is working, but there's a lot of resistance from uh, different groups in the Senate, um, primarily Republican at that time, um, and the the Depression is still wearing on. Like jobs are improving, but they're still there's still a sense, uh, there's still economic disparagement in the country. Now, when you think of the Depression, the big thing that you have to consider 
arguably, is is that when you're going to make a movie about the current era and this being Depression-era America, it'd be very hard to make a comedy about two bums hanging out in Bum Alley. Um, or two hobos, I'm sorry, hobos, specifically hobos of the era. Um, in fact, that would be more trending towards a drama. Um, and so one of the things that's pointed out in that criterion by the essayists is that a lot of the comedies that permeate not just screwball, but a lot of product of the era is poking fun at the upper class, but while not distinctly dismantling the upper class. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just like, well, we're going to make fun of our social betters, but at the end of the day, we're all we're all humans. Um, and uh, so what I find interesting about Man, My Man Gottfried from a modern context is that in a lot of ways, it's a movie we need today. Um, and in a lot of ways, yeah. it's also it's, and in a lot of ways, it's dated not because of the content, but because of how it has to go about it because of censorship um guidelines of the era and also a national mood um because contrary to popular belief um the uh the 30s wasn't just depression and then war a lot of stuff that goes on in the 30s with that depression has to do with a lot of other ideals such as socialism or communism being presented as alternatives and so right. what the filmmakers of this era are doing, which I which you'll notice right away in something like this, is that they're dipping their toes into those waters, but they are not trying to say that capitalism is bad. They're trying to point out the flaws in it while still engaging in capitalism, which is, again, this whole discussion of art versus commerce. Now, my man Godfrey, though, I would argue, Phil— it takes us to the nth degree, and maybe that's why it's among the best of them that's ever been made, because the insanity of the Bullock family <laughs> is something that you marvel at with oh, like yeah. all with all the wonder of a museum piece. <laughs> well, this is why I say that they had to be these actors, because it's so ridiculous, it required perfection to make it even remotely believable. Yeah. Like, Irene Bullock is a cartoon character, but in Carol Lombard's hand, it's a real person. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But, and, and, and there's a sweetness to her that right. no one, there, no other actress can bring. And I mean, no yes. other actress. Carol Lombard, because she did drama before she went into comedy, she knows how to sell a character in a film like this, which is why. We know her as the queen of screwball because of the fact that she started off in the last place you'd expect for a screwball actress to start. But in fact, Powell doesn't start off as a comedy actor either. He starts off very much through silence and early talkies as a drama actor. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's, he's not decide. He's decidedly not a, um, uh, uh, you know, like a, a, a humorous person right off the bat. Um, in order to kind of talk a little bit about Powell, um, you know, you should start off with the fact that his debut was in a 1922 version of Her Sherlock Holmes, um, where he does not play anybody of uh, any repute other than Foreman Wells. So he's just a side character. Right. Um, but there is there are still frames you see of him with uh, John Barrymore. Um, and then he moves through the silent era 
Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of lost films of his between 1926 and 1927. Um, amongst them is an adaptation of The Great Gatsby where he plays George Wilson. Um, and then he moves forward and gets into uh, uh, a sound debut with the movie Interference. And then he moves into... Um, the first of many detectives he would play, which is Philo Vance, um, starting in the Canary murder case mm-hmm. and then moving into the Green murder case um, and moving to the Benson murder case. Uh, and then pa- he plays him on Paramount on Parade as well. Um, <laughs> and now and, and sadly, one of the only um, uh, the only uh, Philo Vance movies that he doesn't make is the Gracie Allen murder case, which I think is a fucking shame because <laughs> have, have William Powell with Burns and Allen. I'm on board. Of course. I'm on combo. Why wouldn't I be on board? Except it never <laughs> freaking happened. Um, but he's also in things like, uh, uh, Manhattan melodrama, made ladies, man, man of the world, uh, the, the road to Singapore. No, not that one. The other one, <laughs> the one before it, um, the other road. Yeah. And then in 1934, he gets this amazing break when he's paired with not a screwball goddess, but just a goddess period. Myrna Loy in the thin man. Um, and then from there he keeps getting these nice prestige roles, but he starts developing a very sardonic dry attitude. Uh, to his performances. Like, he's very straightforward. Um, Everything is delivered with eloquence, but it's not meant to put the person down. (laughs) Um, He, (laughs) if anything, he, the feeling I always get watching him as Nick Charles and even in My Man Godfrey is that he's not trying to talk down to anybody per se, but he's not afraid to let you have it verbally. (laughs) Right. right. Um, He is more than willing to throw you under any kind of intellectual bus. So long as he looks like he's polite doing it. (laughs) Um, And uh, so when he gets to my man, Godfrey, it's interesting to note that in the thin man, he's cracking lots of jokes because he has the adequate aid of Myrna Loy, W.S. Van Dyke directing and the prop of booze. So he's able to have a motivation to be that ridiculous detective who might solve a mystery if he has the time. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, And so Godfrey as a character, though, is not um, he's not particularly a funny character if you look at it from a technical standpoint, like we think he's the things he says are funny. Yes. But right. he, he doesn't have the comedy moments, quote unquote. He's he a straight man, sort of. Yes, exactly. Now, something I want to ask before we jump into the plot, Phil, do you think a lot more of his dialogue has become funnier over time because we've evolved <laughs> um, in oh, our absolutely. In, in interpretation of humor? <laughs> Well, and it's funny because unlike many movies that I love and watch that are comedies and I watch over and over again, this one still gets me. Like, I still find myself laughing out loud because I see, like, new layers to it. And Mm -hmm. especially in the times that we live now, so much of what goes on in this movie has, like you said, new meaning. It's, It's become relevant all over again in a whole new way, and it's kind of fantastic. Exactly, Phil. That's why I want to introduce my new butler, Mr. Godfrey. Uh, he's, 
just a wonderful, wonderful mustache man. Um, yes. He's going to help me at mar largo while I try to figure out why everything's fucking rigged. <laughs> I mean, we, we're right back there. It's like we learn nothing. Yeah. yeah, we. it's almost as if, though, Matthew McConaughey, despite stupid shit he said recently, <laughs> um, is very much right in True Detective, where he says time is a flat circle. Everything just keeps moving in a circular motion. Like, yeah. it's, it's literally... Uh, it, it's, it, it, well, and a lot of it has to do with, like, we could get into a whole discussion that's not movie-related in terms of, like, how <laughs> how virtually, well, actually, we're just going to talk about it when we jump into this plot now. We're just going to do this. This, we're going to, we open up, first of all, is this not one of the greatest opening credit sequences to a comedy, let alone a movie, period? Because I'd, I'd put this in the money for it. Because it's oh, yeah. very, it's very inventive. Uh, we open up, and it's, Basically, all the credits are done as a series of light-up billboards and um, flashing neon lights. Um, you see, like, universal pictures. Um, and they flash on and off. So, like, when one credit's done, they move on to the next yeah. one. And you see this sweeping... The camera pans around as it shows this animation, uh, finally, finally ending on directed by Gregory LaCava. And amidst the elegance we've seen in the opening credits, the camera immediately pans over this painting to a dump. <laughs> and not just any dump, the city dump 32. <laughs> um, That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and from there, we tra- like the, it, it literally transitions into um, a, uh, 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 an actual film, uh, actual film footage. So the reason I bring up the transition is that I kind of almost want to see more films do this nowadays. And I know this film, the the goal of this show is to talk about ways we see the film in other films of the era. One thing I talked about with Adam Jewell on the Double Indemnity episode is, can we bring back opening credit sequences? I say yes. yes. Can we also bring them back to look to do like this, where we're not afraid to show a painting that did transitions into you know, like literally the bowels of the depression itself? Because this just warmed my heart because it sets you up for the mood of the movie itself but it's also a very much a painting of its era uh, a very timely painting that probably was you know like i mean like was felt just as much then as we see it now from a historical context um and on top of that it the transition is seamless like it's just it's just glorious but then we literally start in the middle of the Great Depression and we are treated to a Mr. Godfrey Smith warming himself up. And he's got another guy coming up to him. Um, uh, I, this was, I was trying to remember his name. Um, his, uh, his, um, his, his other, friend, I don't know. His they friend. call him Duke, but I can't think yeah. of what, he, what his friend's name is. I thought it was Bill or Bob. Um, but regardless they get into a discussion about how his friend had a scheme going up until the cops um, broke it up. Um, And (laughs) Duke brings up prosperity being just around the corner. And um, his friend replies with, yeah, it's been around that corner for a long time. I wish I knew which corner it was. (laughs) So if anybody doesn't know, Phil, you know what this means. Would you explain to the audience what prosperity just around the corner means? (laughs) Prosperity just around the corner. Well, it's always around the next corner. There's always another corner, first of all. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, and, it's, and I don't know if we've gotten to that corner yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. Um, and the reason why a phrase like this sounds just as ridiculous then as it does today is this is what Herbert Hoover was saying to right. get people riled up and say, like, no, 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 don't worry. This depression is not going to stay around forever. Like, we're prosperity, it's just around the corner. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll have a plan together in two weeks. You know, it's all... <laughs> It's listen, all coming together. Listen, listen. The virus isn't going to get you. We don't need to yeah. shut down the government. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, it's going to go away like it's a miracle. It's yeah, going to no, be no. fine. No, you don't need unionization. All you need is profits. Um, right. <laughs> profits. And then they're living in towns literally named after him, the Hoovervilles. Yes. I mean. And remember, no bathroom breaks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, actually, the Hoovervilles are interesting because, like, Hoover says that as a political pundit, and then I don't think he ever imagined, number one, that his own phraseology would be turned against him like that. Right. To show his inadequacy to be in touch with actual people. But number two, I don't think he ever thought it would be lampooned to the point of a song <laughs> in a musical about a little redhead orphan, her dog, and her bald rich patron father <laughs> that's right <laughs> which is also directed by john houston if you if you thought that was ridiculous just look it up john houston directed annie <laughs> that is crazy that is that is crazy i also know it's one of those movies that he clearly didn't care about <laughs> that doesn't mean the movie's bad i could just tell he doesn't give a shit he doesn't care <laughs> he's just like no this helps me make under the volcano um <laughs> but uh well, I'll tell you, one of the things to me that's very valuable about something like this, when you can look at a movie like this and you get back in that mindset and we're obviously observing how time is repeating itself, it helps to get a little perspective because, you know, for obvious reasons, recent times have been very, very difficult. And a lot of things you hear a lot of people saying, oh, this is unprecedented. Nothing ever like this has happened before. Blah, blah, blah. And it has. I mean, it's different. <laughs> and obviously there's new things, but... It's, we've seen this before. It's taken different forms and maybe more insidious in some ways than others. But this, we've seen this before. It's been done. Phil, so Phil, you know, Phil, they don't know how to read. Leave them alone. They don't know how to read. <laughs> it's in black and white, so I guess it doesn't count. That's why oh. they colorized it to get them in there. You know. Oh, oh, oh. So, oh, so you're saying Ted Turner was actually a genius? <laughs> I, I think so. I think that's all part of the plan. Yeah, yes, yes, that was my whole entire plan. If I if I colorized Citizen Kane, it would warn them about the rise of Donald Trump. And if I if I colorized Casablanca, it would warn them about the Proud Boys. Uh <laughs> if only they colorized it sooner. If only you fools had listened to me. Now you can't join me on my special cruise ship. The Ted, the Ted Turner classic. <laughs> That's not the name of a boat. Um, I've lost it. But anyway, Phil, I'm going to tell you, though, something that LaCava does that's pretty cool is that whenever he sets up a scene, he pays it off. Because when somebody's wondering when prosperity is going to be around the corner, technically it arrives in the form of a rich, elegant car driving up to the dump. <laughs> That's right. And it out, literally comes around the corner. And out of the car, we first see the visage of somebody that I'd like to initially start off by calling her the worst. Her name is <laughs> Cornelia Bullock. Um, and uh, she arrives along with her sister and um, 
a young man that she's going with, clearly. But her sister, Irene Bullock, played by beautiful goddess Carol Lombard, um, and they are looking for a forgotten man for a scavenger hunt. Um, now, when we were talking off mic, Phil, I told you that if this film is approached as a remake today and you tweak some things, it turns into a horror movie. And this <laughs> yes. is and this is my evidence <laughs> because I love when I first saw My Man Godfrey, it was from the library. Again, similar to you, not a great print, but watchable. Um, and I just looked at it as a screwball comedy. As I've gotten older and learned about rich versus poor, I've suddenly realized that we are literally just there for sport. And <laughs> and, yeah. the, and this this is evidence of it because so Cornel- well, Cornelia offers him $5 and Godfrey, rightfully so, is annoyed as shit. And he and he not only tells her to go fuck herself in in so much thirties language, but he pushes her into a pile of ashes. That's right, into the ash pile. This <laughs> is like a big fuck you, lady. <laughs> See, those are the ashes of the people that you crushed in the dust with your financial <laughs> greed. Um, and uh, but so she leaves. She goes like, well, harumph. Um, and then, um, but you know, Irene, very naive. Ditz, on, I don't know if the term ditzy is appropriate for Irene. I don't think she's stupid. Like no. I don't know if you get that. It's, it's, I think she's just sheltered. Yeah, she's very, very um, unaware. But yeah. she, but her heart is so big, and she doesn't possess um, the level of bitter um, emotion that Cornelia does. And Irene kindly explains what the situation is. Not fully realizing she's also being insensitive, but Godfrey is able to swallow this better. Um, right. And at this point, Godfrey's just like, you know, this. If you look at the visage on him, he's a disheveled, you know, five, five make it ten o'clock shadow, <laughs> right. and um, and wearing all wearing the finest of hobo clothing imaginable, and um, he basically agrees, like, okay. I'll go along with this. Like, let, let's go. Let's go yeah. to the. Let's let's go to the um the Ritz the Ritz Astoria there, uh, the Waldorf Ritz, and let's Waldorf Ritz. Yeah, yeah, the Waldorf Ritz. <laughs> just say the Ritz, uh, the the Ritz Carlton or the the Hotel Pierre or it's like just <laughs> just say a name of a hotel that exists in New York, please. Um, <laughs> there's plenty of them, and I don't think they're gonna sue you. Um, but uh, anyway, they go. Uh, into the, the well, they arrive at the hotel, but also in the hotel we meet the rest of this yes. family. The rest um, of the Bullocks. The rest of the Bullocks. Well, the rest of the Bullocks and um. Well, don't forget Carlo. Well, oh, you mean Poochie the dog? Yeah, no, don't worry, I'm not going to forget Poochie. We'll get to we'll get to why I'm making that comparison. But first, we do meet Alexander Bullock, um, and he's drinking um with another fellow rich man, um very much contemplating his entire life with <laughs> with each sip because he has a rather ditzy wife named Angelica and her mood her very her he's a mooch carlo is a mooch but yes. he's a protege because he's supposed to be a master musician but he barely plays the piano in this movie, as we see. <laughs> and when he does finally play the piano, 
he, it, it, it upsets everybody, um, <laughs> especially me. Um, but, um, but Angelica is going along with this, with this scavenger hunt as well. And she is quite literally enamored by the discovery of a cute goat. Yes. I, 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 I like the, the, the only thing that I, I just like Phil, it, it, it made me like, it didn't make me angry. It made, <laughs> it made me relieved because I'm like, Oh, everything I think about rich people is correct. <laughs> oh, look at this goat. Isn't this the fuzziest, furriest goat you've ever seen? I'm like, you get to see it for five seconds, lady. Try living on a farm. <laughs> and uh, but but I will say that we're gonna find with each of these family members because we are gonna kind of throw them under the bus because they are, again, very much on the minds of the current uh, uh, socioeconomic standard right. that we live under. However, because of the way they're written by Risk and and Eric Hatch. Along with, I wanted to mention this. There is a contribution of writers by Robert Presnell Sr. Gregory LaCava obviously contributes to whatever he's working on. But also Zoe Atkins, who is a playwright, a poet, and she was the winner of the 1935 Pulitzer Prize for um, The Old Maid. Um, hmm. So she is a very um, established figure. She ended up actually working on films like How to Marry a Millionaire, um and uh, uh well not how to marry a millionaire she wrote the um she was she would sell the rights to plays such as the greeks had a word for it which would then become how to marry a millionaire okay. um but she also um uh worked throughout broadway and hollywood in various different um uh, capacities but she went uncredited for this film um uh so but you know so it's hard to tell what her contributions exactly are but wonderful to note that much like the awful truth another female writer is contributing in some form or fashion to one of the greatest screwball comedies ever made right. <laughs> um but anyway back to that goat now <laughs> <laughs> but as we as we're going to find out each of these family members has a redeemable quality about them one that actually makes them not forgiven, but like it's it's there's empathy to be found in the movie. Yes, you, yes. The, the movie is a lot about finding empathy, but we're not gonna find it right away right now because as of now, the scavenger hunt is still going on, and we have Franklin Pangborn, um, who is the judge of this scavenger hunt contest, basically trying to rein in who's got who, who's got what. Um, Franklin Pangborn, the reason I'm gonna aside to him for a second is Phil, you know you've seen him in more than one thing. But you well, never, but you, so you've, have you ever seen George Washington slept here? Um, I actually haven't. Okay. No. Have you ever seen All Through the Night? Man, I, no, I don't think so. I have couldn't you, say for sure. Okay. I, I know. Okay. He's going to reveal some weak spots here. No, I know. it's it's fine. Don't worry. I'll, I'm sure I'll find something. But here's the thing over hundreds of credits, hundreds of credits. He is a comedy actor. He would he would basically play like a stumbling, bumbling kind of guy. He's a lot of Preston Sturgis films. Um, uh, he he's very very well known for um, International House, The Bank Dick, and Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. 
um, where he's working along me, W.C. Fields. <laughs> oh, isn't it all lovely, wonderful? Franklin, get over here. Let me breathe on you and you can fall over. Um, <laughs> but also Sullivan's Travels, which again, Sullivan's. Preston, Preston Sturgis, the, mm-hmm. he, he ran the gamut um, working in working all throughout, and it's not just comedy; it's also drama. He also does stuff like now Voyager. Um, he's very he plays himself in Stage Door Canteen, which is the East Coast version of Hollywood Canteen, um, a, a double feature that will happen. Um, but he also is the house detective in The Horn Blows at Midnight, so he's worked with Jack more than once. So already yeah. he's already he's a legend. Um, and one of the things that you'll if you ever see The Horn Blows at Midnight, you'll notice that the ca- the camera always zooms in on him a little bit whenever he looks. Um, uh, taken aback, and he goes like, mm, like just, <laughs> just like that, that stuffy upper crust. Well, I never. Um, but here he's not. He only not only doesn't have a mustache, but he is judging these rich people on their finds. Um, and a scavenger hunt, as we've learned, is where you find things that nobody wants to find. Whereas a treasure hunt is where people are looking for something they want to find. Um. Turns out that this scavenger hunt will eventually turn into a treasure hunt by the end of the movie. Oh, oh. foreshadowing! Yeah, that's the Lacava swoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's right, swing it into, swing it for the fences, Gregory. I like it. <laughs> I am watching the movie. <laughs> but so now she, this this scene, yeah, in my original like copy of it was completely unintelligible. Other than like visually yeah. looking at it, because I, I think it's a brilliant scene, but it's it's screaming throughout the whole scene. It's an entire room full of people all screaming, and you can barely make out snippets of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. Yeah. But unfortunately, I didn't even get to hear what they were saying until years later when I got a decent copy. So, um, you know, you know, so obviously this is due to wear and tear and over um, producing these prints. So you copy a co- uh, copies on top of a copy on top of, of a copy. These dupe negatives um, end up producing lower and lower res quality. We talked mm-hmm. about this with uh, the farmer's wife and. Um, you can even talk about it with the lodger, which is why for the longest time the lodger never had a really proper transfer. Um, and then the other theory is is that Christopher Nolan traveled back in time to ruin a movie for you, which I <laughs> <laughs> that's also possible. Yeah, um, if you didn't think I wasn't gonna zing Tenet at least once by 2021, guess again. Um, I still need to rewatch it. It's fine. Um, but anyway, no it, that that scene though it's interesting. Do you have the Criterion version these days? I do not. Okay. I do. Not. I I should, but I don't. Okay. Um. Don't worry. You may get it sooner than you think. Um. But anyway, <laughs> the uh the the having the subtitles on the film from a Criterion especially is magnificent because it does mm. pretty much approximate all the language that's going on in there and, um and actually at one point when Lombard goes in there, you think she's saying Mister Godfrey, Mister Godfrey. She's actually saying Mister Guthrie. So the name of Franklin Pangborn's character is Mister Guthrie, right. um, but it's very hard to suss it out. Um, but anyway, Lombard comes in there with Godfrey. Um, uh, Mister Guthrie puts Godfrey on the stage and interviews him a little bit <laughs> about being poor. Like let's let's make sure. That, that you're, you're really a, poor. Let's make sure that you're trash, sir. What? <laughs> like, all the way down to feeling his whiskers because he said someone else put fake whiskers. 
on one of their own team members. The 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 they'll, again, I'm going to bring up the horror illusion only because also this this comparison is actually a, technically also a comedy perspective if you look at it a certain way. It reminds me of Get Out when they mm-hmm. are all talking to Chris um and and more than one white person is touching his arms or feeling him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the scariest shit in that movie after you know the twist. But uh, in here, it's degrading. Like it's, yeah. It, I mean, like it's degrading and get out. But here, it is like just as degrading. Like that. That's still that's the 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 disconnect between the upper class and the lower class, where they are clearly just treated like objects, um, or a uh, a pimple on society's ass. Um, like that's how they're treating this. Um, and Godfrey is putting up with it. Um, he's very much. He's almost disassociated himself from embarrassment. Like, right, it's, right. It's very much. He's just like, just wait, because Whatever. I'm gonna say. I I know what they're gonna do. They're gonna be <laughs> so bold as to make sure that I say a speech, and then sure enough, I'm gonna give them that old Powell what for. <laughs> An epic takedown. I oh, mean, if ever there was one, it is. So we, we so Irene wins the cup, and uh, she they say speech from the forgotten man. Um, and apparently they had to verify it because some of these other rich fucks were uh, dressing up their friends as hobos to pass them off, um, which I was like, I prefer you do that than try to actually dig up a hobo because right. one one is at the very least less degrading to an actual human being. Um, <laughs> yes. But, but at any rate, she wins. They ask for the speech and he's just like, well, I'm here because I wanted to aid this nice young lady. And second, I wanted to see what a group of nitwits uh, looks and sounds like. <laughs> and my favorite line in the movie by somebody that is not a principal cast. <laughs> yep, or, yep. Yeah, somebody. Oh. I I thought it was I thought it was Angelica at first, but I can't confirm this. I think I think it's it's someone off screen. I think it's a male voice. Even. Yeah, but like somebody says. He called us a nitwit. What's a nitwit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. What's a nitwit? <laughs> and it's it's like it's the validation to end all validations from 1936 sent on down to us, Phil. Yes, yes. What's a nitwit? What's a nitwit? It's a brilliant line. Oddly, if I had to guess on whose line that is, it's probably Riskin's. Because he could he knew how to write upper class nitwits. Because he had basically done that with folks like Margaret Dumont for the Marx Brothers, um, not on not that Margaret Dumont's a nitwit in those movies with the Marx Brothers, but she is very um, she is designed to be unaware of what Groucho's doing. <laughs> right, right. She is by design very unaware of what's going on. And that's the beauty of Margaret Dumont as a performer is because she does know what's going on, and that's why she's a great actress. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, she knew what was going on, guys. Stop believing. Groucho lied to you. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> anyway, they they finished the scavenger hunt, and Irene, you know, like nobly, and I think this is a testament to her character, doesn't give a shit about the cup. She's more interested in Godfrey um, and more or less what Godfrey's going to do now. And... She basically offers him a job as a butler. And do you buttle? <laughs> do, do you buttle? Do you buttle? Now this and this payoff uh, again. There's this other payoff of like 
prosperity being around the corner. Next thing you know, she they they go to the hotel. Um, the uh, I, you know, I, I I think that when you think about like, would you like to like becoming a butler for somebody, that kind of thing? Like, this is a comic trope that has different forms and functions. The one I first saw it in really. Phil was on Seinfeld when uh, <laughs> George and Jerry are writing their pilot. Yeah, and because one, he's my butler. Because he's my <laughs> butler. Because if, for anybody who's never watched Seinfeld, first of all, shame on you. And second of all, <laughs> uh, is that they're writing a pilot and they're trying to figure out how to make Jerry into sitcom material. And one of them, one of the catches is, is that um, a guy has been sentenced by a judge to be his butler. <laughs> and it's yes. it's a great stupid part of that season that I fucking love. <laughs> um, but anyway, but the whole idea of butlers in comedy extends so further out. Um, I think actually it's funny, not just Seinfeld, but like the critic plays on this too. Um, you have... Um, there's a distinct pleasure in watching the working class working for the rich and them having a personality beyond, you know, yes, sir, no, sir. Mm -hmm. um, now, last week we talked about how Rochester, uh, Eddie Rochester Anderson fit into that mold. And obviously there is a negative racist stereotype attached to that. Um, one that was overcome mm -hmm. thanks to the writing of that show doesn't mean that it's still not a negative stereotype. When it talk when we're coming up we're talking about a white guy being a butler though, it's a very different stereotype where it's 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 a white person, so they're not, you know, necessarily caring. But the the big important part of it though is is that it's the lower class versus the upper class literally within the house. Now right. they're not even dealing with somebody on the street. It's somebody within the house. And there's a, a modicum of fake respect. And what's amazing about my man Godfrey is is that the family is so out of its goddamn mind that they actually do respect Godfrey. <laughs> yeah. Like, th there's a genuine respect for him. He except becomes for, like a father figure almost. Yeah, and, and now I'm, I'm glad you said that because the on the Criterion, I really recommend you get this Criterion because it's, it's more packed than you'd think it would be. Um, but the uh, one of the... One of the uh, allusions that is made to it is that um, there was a film by Jean Renoir, Jean Renoir in 1932 called Voodoo Coming Into the House. Um, and Voodoo um, uh, uh, Safe from Drowning, sorry, um, where a, a poor man comes into the house and seduces everybody. The formula here in this film and, uh, and in most screwball comedies of this ilk is poor person comes into the house and saves the family. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're dealing with the voodoo. In this case, we are dealing with William Powell is there to save the family from the sins of being rich and being stupid. <laughs> and more than often than not, he succeeds. There's only one instance where he doesn't succeed. And we'll talk about him because we, we're going to move now into Godfrey's first day of work. Yes. And what a first day of work it is. <laughs> you enter the door right away, and already the maid Molly, played by the wonderful Gene Dixon, basically just explains to him, look, 
you're going to be out of here within 30 seconds. Leave your hat by the door. Yeah, leave your hat by the door. You're going to need it right away. <laughs> You'll want to get out immediately. And as they're discussing what life is like here at the Bullock House, that buzzer rings, and it is Angelica Bullock uh, requesting her fucking tomato juice from the night before because she was not only ditzy last night, but she was fucking plastered. Um, and she, uh, they get the tomato juice ready, and he actually puts a little. Um, it appears to be a hot sauce or like a like a Tabasco Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire, yeah, that's right, Worcestershire. Yes. He puts something bitter or something in there, like to basically complement the bitter feeling that you're going to have. Anti-irritant, he calls yeah, it exactly, like to, an irritant to combat an irritant. Um, now. Now, uh, you know, as I've been open about on this show, I don't drink anymore. But I had, I had wished that I had, I wish that I had remembered my man Godfrey when drinking, because <laughs> maybe I could have given that a shot, and maybe the hangovers would have stopped. But <laughs> obviously, I made the better choice, which is just stop. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, exactly, no <laughs> doubt. But I might just try that on a whim: tomato juice with Worcestershire sauce in it, and just see how many yeah, times. I, 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 I feel like it's the cheaper version of Epicac. Where he makes yeah. you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and he, so anyway, he brings up, brings it up the stairs, and she makes, she gives him, a, Molly gives him a warning, is that she sees pixies. <laughs> Angelica sees pixies. Yes. And we, I, you know, drunk, drunkenness and its portrayal in the old era is certainly different what it is today because definitely the only the only way she'd be seeing that is if she's like literally drinking ether or freaking absinthe <laughs> <laughs> right. so i don't know what these rich people are imbibing but i mean i kind of wish i had it in college but <laughs> their stuff is just better stuff that's the thing oh, oh yeah that's right oh yeah they, they it's it's a uh, wine made from the blood of actual humans um, <laughs> <laughs> um but anyway the uh he goes up there and he um uh he's giving her the drink to combat and she he uh, he goes a uh, pixie remover <laughs> <laughs> and, and she's like, oh, you see them too, huh? <laughs> and God bless Godfrey. He just goes along with it. Um, yeah. But if you notice in this scene from the moment it starts to the moment it ends, to the moment he leaves Angelica's room, there is horror film-esque kind of creepy. Like, it's not a theremin. It's just very haunting, like a harp mixed with some yeah. bells playing. And... I don't know. I can't be sure if that's the kava playing on the eeriness of Angelica or playing on her her aloofness. But regardless, there is a way if you watch the scene. Like I know I was joking about the horror element of it, but it, like there is a there is a tinge of like okay awkward like and it's playing on that suspense of just like. Not only is it is Godfrey gonna get fired, it's just like what is this lady gonna do? Because we know she sees shit. Right. <laughs> um, but she it doesn't matter because he gets out of there nice, safe, and sound. And then the next job 
first of all, Molly's just like, oh, you're still, you still got a job. <laughs> He's just like, as far as I can tell, yeah, like then no, she's, she, nobody's throwing me out. And then the next job is to go and deliver breakfast to Cornelia, who immediately throws his ass out. Right, screams at him. Yeah, just like you know, again, Cornelia's is, it's Cornelia the worst, Bullock. <laughs> um, and um, oh, before I leave, um. Angelica, I wanted to bring up this thing that permeates the film that we're going to see. Sound effects trail off in this movie a bunch to the benefit Mm -hmm. of a gag. And the first real example of it that we see is as Godfrey leaves Angelica's room, uh, you can hear Angelica still giggling. (laughs) She's drinking this tomato juice drink. He's going like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and you're just she has such a great laugh oh god it's wonderful Al- alice alice brady is somebody that i would like to uh learn a little bit more about because i don't believe i've seen her in anything else that i could like put my uh finger on apart from young mr lincoln um which is a uh, john ford movie from 1939 um mm-hmm. but uh um uh, but uh, but I mean, if if she's in another film that I would have seen, I'll have to I'll have to uh, correct it in the edit of this episode. But but she has just a wonderful ditziness about her that feels kind of Gracie Allen esque, but somehow yeah. but somehow stupider. Because <laughs> Gracie's logic makes sense to Gracie, and therefore it is technically genius. I don't think Angelica knows what she's talking about. <laughs> no, no. And that's she just says whatever's on the top of her head. Yeah. Like, oh well, we'll get to some lines she says because some of them <laughs> stood out. Where I'm like, are you actually talking out loud right now? <laughs> um, but so he gets thrown out of Cornelia's. So, um, but Irene hollers for him, and so he goes into Irene's room. And Irene is sleeping there like the beautiful comedy goddess that she is. Um, And uh, she wakes up. She's very excited. It almost seems like she forgets that she offered the job to. Right. She doesn't recognize him without his whiskers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, it's just it's now I I think she and Angelica both suffer from Clark Kent syndrome where somebody (laughs) somebody's face doesn't look like their face. Beyond, like, it's, you know, what? now I totally understand why nobody knew who Clark Kent actually was. It makes, <laughs> makes complete sense. There's no, actually, it does technically mean that Zack Snyder made some correct decisions in his Superman movies. <laughs> Where it's just like, no, 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 nobody gives a shit. <laughs> nobody gives a shit if he wears glasses or whatever. Like, I mean, I don't think anybody really gives a shit. Now, what they might give a shit about is if the the crux of a battle between my two heroes fighting each other over their own per- principles is that they both have mothers with the same name. Uh. I think that might be problematic, <laughs> but I'm going to go with it anyway because I've been given cart fucking blanche. <laughs> I mean, th- seriously, that's the only way that gets through. Uh. There's no, not a single person was like, hey, that's kind of dumb. Let's come up with something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Zach, don't you think it's a... Nope. Nope. All right. The first rule about being a Zach is say something stupid first, ask questions later. 
which as you notice phil i do that as well so um <laughs> i i have a meeting with zach at the next meeting of the zach so don't worry i'll, I'll tell him you said hi anyway, oh, that's good yeah let yeah, him know <laughs> yeah exactly he's a ck zach though so he's a little highfalutin whereas oh, i was yeah. i'm a ch of a little bit ancestral um and, uh but anyway so they get into a discussion about what Irene says something interesting here, and maybe you remember the dialogue a little bit more verbatim, but basically she calls him his responsibility by yes. explaining it that you're my protege, much like Carlo is mother's protege. Um, and so I feel a responsibility to you. Now, I'm curious how an audience member of the era saw this dialogue presented because... I maybe looked into it a little too much on the rewatch this um, this week, but it's almost like she's again. We've established that Irene's a little bit unaware. Yes, she's unaware that she's unintentionally calling him property <laughs> or a pet. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, it's interesting how this dialogue sears a different way today. And then I thought, no it probably had the same impact then that it does now. The thing is, is that the protege gag does permeate the movie where she's basically still calling him his, her responsibility. And then even William Powell acknowledges it. Um, now, of course that comes with context of what's to come in this story, but um, especially with who Godfrey actually is um, mm -hmm. so, oh, so slight spoilers. Um, uh, but uh but she uh, she gets into this excitement over I'm responsible for you, and then he leaves to let her eat the breakfast. And as he as he exits the room, his suitcase is there because Molly has made the the assumption of just like this would have been the final straw for him. Right. <laughs> I like how Molly is initially trying to make life decisions for Godfrey going like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but it's also the, yep. it's also similar to like Molly's character in this moment is does over the span of five minutes, what Lakeith Stanfield does in get out in two seconds, which is just yell out, get out, get out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, She's trying to get him out of there. She, she gives him every morning. He, she possibly can. Listen, listen, they have dirt on me. They don't have anything on you, Godfrey. You can go. Get away from this fucking crazy family. This stupid nonsense. Um, but Godfrey is a man of principle. He is a man of doing the job right. And he's going to do it to the best of his ability. And so he's going to um, uh, take care of this family in spite of how much of a headache it might give him. Uh, and uh, as he walks down the stairs, we come upon Mr. Bullock again. And <laughs> I love it. I love this. Alexander Bullock assumes that Godfrey has just made canoodling with Irene Bullock. Yes. And he just says, like, well... You know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man who says what he means, and I've, I was the middleweight champion boxing, uh, middleweight champion boxer in college. <laughs> he's, he takes his shirt off, ready to duke it out with him, right. until he's just like, chill out. I'm the butler. I'm the butler. I'm the butler. And then amidst this conversation about like his employment, a person comes to the door and serves. 
Al Alexander Balika subpoena for broken windows that Cornelia broke last night. <laughs> so this family is not only off it, out of its damn mind, they're entitled to the point where they are destroying public property. And, and what makes them worse, Irene rode a horse <laughs> up the stairs, up to the apartment, and the people want their fucking horse back. Which they their are, horse is still in the library. Yes, their house is still, they want their horse back. Horse? What horse? He literally doesn't believe it. And one of the great things that this actually made me realize this might have been done because of the budget, where you Universal was going to cut corners wherever they want. The gag of the horse is brilliant because all Alexander does is open the door, and you hear... <laughs> That's all you hear, yep. and he closes the door. No, You don't need to see the horse... I don't need to see the horse taking a shit. I don't need to see uh, th that uh, Zach Knudsen from Clerks 2 fucking it. <laughs> this is flat out just a horse sound effect, and it is one of the funniest bits in the movie. <laughs> because it, It's like the horror rule. Like, the less you show, the more your mind does the joke for you. Yeah, you know? and it also, and actually, you know, like as we talk about that, like, one of the reasons comedy and horror can blend well together is because they share similar principles of... Mm -hmm over exacerbation of emotion and but i thought about it i was i i wish i could get confirmation of like somebody like lakava would he have wanted a horse my answer is honestly no but i think also a lot of it had to do with like look we're gonna cut corners here at universal where we can do you need a horse um i i mean like i may know right. i may know a guy from warner brothers who might come in under the radar uh his name's mel and he might just be able to do a horse for you for fucking nothing um <laughs> uh and but anyway they they've established godfrey's here to stay they we get a we we move over to a shot of godfrey tending to the house and he and Cornelia duke it out with a bit of verbal assault um, in which Godfrey firmly defends himself going like, I pushed you into a pile of ash, bitch. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not messing around. I'm like, I look, I'm here to do a job. And you, all your all you need to do is tell me what to do and I will do it. Say yes, sir. No, sir. But beyond that, I could give two fucks what happens to you, Miss Cornelia. <laughs> like, and, and I... I wonder how Cornelia, like, like actually her transformation throughout the movie is kind of amazing. Yeah. Because it's almost like it shouldn't work, especially. But it does. Yeah, it, it does. It really does. Um, but this is also the scene where everybody in the family basically interacts with each other. Um, and in this whole scene, we establish the family dynamic. We established that Alexander Bullock is fucking tired of his family, which don't worry, don't worry, Alex. I am too. Um, not not in a not in an intentional way, but just like I I, I would I would I empathize with you. If yes. I, I, if I live with this, I'd be on my way to the sanitarium right now as well. Um, confusing me with the bank. Yeah, confusing me with the bank and destroying public property, stealing public property <laughs> and riding it up a stairs <laughs> um and they uh they, they they we also learn we learn a little bit more about angelica and her aloofness but we really get to know carlo 
Oh, yes, Carlo. We really get to know Carlo. Now, before oh, we I love Carlo. Before we get to Carlo really quickly, I do want to address, we also established that Irene and um, Cornelia duke it out. She actually, if if I, uh, Cornelia is, wants, is threatening to unveil the protege ship that Irene has, and then Irene counters back with, well, then I'll tell them about that college boy. <laughs> just, right. So they're, but they say it very, cause they say, well, I didn't do it, but if I did, I would have said this. And they're very like trying to say it where it's very obvious what they're saying, but they think they're being really clever and subtle about it. Yeah. And, and, and Irene is portraying the situation, the way Lombard's playing it. And I actually find this, it's pretty masterful for a reason. It's not, it's the performance itself is very complicated turned into simple she's having to play a teenage girl in the form of an adult body yes it's very very weird because i don't know the actual ages of angelica and cornelia it's not really established uh or of of, uh, irene and cornelia it's not really like they're not going to school so they're very much clearly uh like in their early 20s or something like yeah it's established that they're they're young but they're not like they're not in high school, but because Irene is so sheltered and because Cornelia is so embittered, they represent two different forms of bratism. Um, the first yes. Corne- Cornelia's is the one that we can recognize and boo at. Irene's is one that we look at and really kind of feel sorry for her. <laughs> and like, but but within that, it's also one of the reasons why we love her because. While, while if I'm a depression era audience watching that and seeing Irene say the thing she says, like you're my responsibility, because of the way Carol Lombard is a genius at playing this, I don't begrudge her that statement. And in fact, I'm already putting the pieces together in my head that it's like, oh well, she's in love with him. Right. <laughs> it's, this is this is a this is a crush, but it's a crush that we want to follow because God damn it. Irene has given me no reason to actually hate her. Like I know we were, I know I was giving her shit, but reality is, is that I fall in love with Irene the same way anybody would fall in love with Irene. Yep. You love her because she, her heart is so fucking big. It is enormous. Whereas Cornelia's is less than the size of the Grinch. And that's right. <laughs> like the Grinch looks at Cornelia and goes, "God, even I'm not oh, that yeah. bad." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they. So they we've established that they are battling sisters. They duke it out on a constant basis, um, and, and over trivial matters such as this. And you know, and Alexander is rightfully f- trying to wonder, like, why did we hire Godfrey? <laughs> like, right. like, who? Wait a minute. Why wasn't I consulted on the hiring of the help here? What's going on? Angelica does not really care so much because she is much more interested in Carlo. <laughs> yes. So. Carlo. I want to talk about not just Carlo, but I want to talk about Misha Auer because he's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Spoilers for the end because, you know, I don't normally want to talk about the Oscar thing until after. But I don't know much about Misha Auer apart from this movie. He's from Russia. Um, His original name is Misha Owenskowski. And uh, his... um, his uh, f- uh, father was a Russian naval officer whose mother was the daughter 
of Hungarian-born violinist Leopold Auer. They emigrate to the United States after the Russian Revolution, um, and they get... Uh, he basically starts performing on stage in the 20s, starting in the Italia Yiddish Theater, moves to Hollywood. His first film is Something Always Happens. He then moves into a series of roles like Rasputin and the Empress, Viva Vila, The Yellow Ticket, a George Gershwin musical called Delicious. He's in Paramount on Parade. And then The Lives of a Bengal Lancer, uh, which sounds like... Very much. I, I mean, I've never seen this movie, but it sounds very much like a Gunga Din-ish <laughs> like hmm. affair because it's a an adventure film from the 30s directed by Henry Hathaway and features, amongst other people, Gary Cooper and Francois Tone. So hmm. I kind of want to see this movie because I definitely need more Misha Hour in my life. Not because I think he's brilliant. <laughs> Although... Things he does in this, like or like, I should say this. I don't think Carlo is brilliant. I think Misha Hour is brilliant. I, I mixed up my words. Yeah, <laughs> it's like because it, it's it's amazing how good he is in this movie, playing the Poochie of the Bullock House, <laughs> or I should take that back, the Roy, because he's because Poochie's a dog. Roy was the human equivalent here, um, and I and there's only one film that I know our is in that I've seen before and can like, uh, uh, um, it were two of them. Actually, I should say Destry rides again. He is in Destry rides again. Um, and hold that ghost. Um, and I don't remember where he is in hell's a poppin, but the listing tells me he's in hell's a poppin. So I need to rewatch hell's a poppin, um, hmm. uh, which, uh, will be discussed on a future episode. Um, he's actually in a Jack Benny movie called college holiday from 1936, but he's uncredited. He's a ticket taker at the door. But, you know, unless it's credited, I'm not going to absolutely notice him right away. Um, right. But this is that's also the college holiday is the same year as my man, Godfrey. So he's kind of popping in and out wherever. Um, but Carlo is a mooch. Car yes. Carlo is basically amongst that class of people who get sponsored by a rich person to develop their art. Um if you've ever seen the movie The Petrified Forest, Leslie Howard's character has this origin story. The difference is, is that Leslie Howard's character in The Petrified Forest is probably has actual talent, whereas I don't <laughs> Carlos know... Carlo's is highly questionable. I think Carlo is a con man of the greatest intelligence. Because what... Oh, yeah. How, how in the world... Have you been able to fool, at the very least, Angelica, but at the most, uh, Alexander Bullock? Because Bullock doesn't like Alexander doesn't like Carlo, but he's no, he hates him. But he puts <laughs> up with Carlo, and I guess part of it has to do with appeasing Angelica. But he puts him down any chance he gets. Carlo doesn't want to perform for anybody because he's fucking shy, which. Again, let's credit to the whole scam artist thing. <laughs> and then after they have this whole kerfuffle over uh, 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 keeping Godfrey and being with Godfrey, uh, <laughs> well, I want to make sure I got the timeline correct. Godfrey doesn't 
break quote unquote break up with <laughs> Irene yet at this point. Like not her, yet. No. no. So this is before she's still like she's throwing a fit. She's, right. Well, because he says they can't have you know they can't hire Godfrey, and she says, yeah. "Well, if Mother can have Carlo, why can't I have Godfrey?" Yes, exactly. Like, yes, that's it. that's right. And so the, she's on the divan or the the couch, whatever. right? Starting to have her 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 breakdown. She's her like, scene. she's like, I don't need an ice pack. I want to die. Like, I just want to <laughs> die. Yeah. Like so, like the 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 teenage meltdown. Which, <laughs> sorry, Phil, you're in for that. Anyway, <laughs> I don't envy you. <laughs> um, that's that's a desperate cry. Well, at least help. I don't have an Irene. That is, I mean, I don't have a Cornelia. I, oh, I, oh, I'm. I yeah, no, no. I think you're gonna be just fine. And also, yeah. and also, what I said was a desperate cry for help. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, Angelica knows how to cheer up Irene, Phil. Yes. He knows how to cheer her. She knows how to cheer her up. She goes to Carlo and says, "Carlo, why don't you show her do the show, gorilla, do the Carlo? Gor- do the gorilla, Carlo." Ugh, now, not in the mood. Yeah, no, that's that's the thing. That's yes. the thing. So yes. that's the first of two. That's the second of two lines where Carlo has made an impact on me. The first one was like, "Oh, money, the Frankenstein, oh, money, the Frankenstein monster that destroys souls." That that freaking like this this pretentious artist bullshit. But then, this this man, when he's asked to imitate a gorilla, he says, oh, I can't do it now. My heart would not be in it. I'll do it, but my heart won't be in yes. it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, I texted you this last night because I rewatched the film after rewatching it a few days ago. Because yes. I wanted to try to keep myself as up to date as possible. I texted you this, and I stand by this to this day. If anybody <laughs> has never seen my man, Godfrey, stop watching. And watch it the watch the whole movie. But if you're gonna try to follow along with us, watch it up to this point at the very least, because Carlo goes into method acting on a level <laughs> that I have that I wonder two things. First is the one I texted you, which is it's impossible to believe that Andy Circus didn't watch this segment <laughs> while researching. How to walk like a like a gorilla or a monkey or an ape for Planet of the Apes, the Planet of the Apes <laughs> movies that he did. Like yes. I want, I want to scour every EPK and I want to hear Andy Circus say, "Yes, well, as you can tell, I studied actual gorillas and actual apes, but I also." studied the work of Misha Auer because Misha Auer taught me that a human much like myself can jump in the air, leap onto the curtains, um, adjust my face as such because I wanted to believe that not only could I be an ape, but I could be a human being an ape. Like, because <laughs> that's the only logic that I have for some of the, because like, it's the thing, Misha Auer is doing actual monkey like it's yeah. not it's not it's not unreasonable what he's doing <laughs> it's not unreasonable that's the brilliance of it and yep. i don't want to talk too much about it further only because it's a scene you've got to see you have to but the question it frightens me mother <laughs> it frightens me so wait but it but but angelica's under the impression that irene loves this so either yes. so either irene's just too far gone to be in the mood to watch it or She's never like this, 
And Angelica just, uses this, that accidentally uses this as torture every time. Because she, and I love the fact that this is clearly something that's happened often enough. Yes. That she says, do the gorilla like it's a thing he does. Yes. And, and not only that, Car- not only that, but Carlos says, my heart won't be in it. I want to yes. know what it looks like when his heart is fully committed <laughs> to a Daniel Day Lewis style. Like, if this is. I. <laughs> I quote that, by the way, on a regular basis. When I don't want to do something, I always say, I'll do it, but my heart won't be in it. Like, that is a part of my regular lexicon. That so. is that is the best way to represent it. But I hope you don't... Yeah, I hope you haven't reached the point in quarantine where you've started doing the gorilla. I have not had to do the gorilla okay. yet. We haven't hit gorilla level okay. quite yet. All right, so, well, see, there you go. Uh, Phil, this is why I was the greatest president, because I didn't bring you down to gorilla level. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the gorilla scares Irene. But we move on to the scene where Godfrey basically establishes ground rules <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. for their uh, uh, relationship uh, as it stands, which is he is um, he has to establish that, look, in order for me to do the job and be the best protege you want me to be, I need to do my job, which means I can't be interacting with you on a constant basis. And our interaction has to be limited to the things you need done around the house or my duties as a butler, saying pleasantries, et cetera, et cetera. Godfrey is trying to distance himself from the the feelings that Irene has for him. But as we're going to learn, it's also for any feelings he may feel towards Irene. Right. Um, and Godfrey, as he unfolds, his coldness becomes more clear. What I like about Powell in this film, and why I think it's technically it's superior to his role in um, The Thin Man or um, any of those other films of this ilk, is that not only is he playing the straight man, but he has to play a deception game. Um, right. So he has to put on a couple layers in this performance. I'd argue that I'd argue that if you were ever going to give him an Oscar for one of these movies, this would have been the time to do it. Um, because this is probably the best he gets in these in this particular role. Because he gets to do basically everything that he wants to that he's good at as an actor in this movie. Yeah, it's it's multi layered. Yeah. It's it's um it's amazing that Powell's Powell's persona is usually relegated to drunk sophisticate with a sharp wit. Um, But here, he is very, very socially conscious, socially aware. He's, you can tell he's seen things because of the way he responds to people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not even just a matter of disdain. It's a matter of experience. Um, which he brings to a role that's basically asking him to basically scale back the the Nick Charles character. Um, and so when he does this, when you see the heartbreak on Irene's face, it's real. And you actually are in Irene's camp wondering, why is this man a dick right now all of a sudden? Like, why is he being so mean to sweet Irene? Why is he being so sweet, or so mean to sweet Irene? Well, it doesn't take long for Irene to turn into 
and in she turns from teenage melodrama to the first emo. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> life has no meaning. <laughs> the 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 I I I literally everything she says <laughs> when she is basically uh uh when when she is be, be, been dealt this blow um she basically says anything that is uh uh what you would hear out of the Lydia character in Beetlejuice that's what i was trying to i was trying to <laughs> yes. get to but like my favorite one is you know uh where should godfrey put these flowers who cares where one puts one's flowers when one's heart is breaking <laughs> that's right i I, Any time I hear that that line, I fall back in a chair or I pound the table because it is only Lombard can get away with that and make you still love that character without rolling your eyes as a modern audience going like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> like, Well, plus those are definitely flowers she had sent to herself to make him jealous on top of everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing we should establish. Irene is now on the mission to do anything, and I mean any goddamn thing. To to make Godfrey twitch his mustache in frustration um, and jealousy, but instead it's just frustration because <laughs> he's pulling a lot of stuff back from that whole situation. And actually, she has another one. What is food? <laughs> what is food? Um, the, the life is an empty bubble. The, the, odd. It's odd. It's so isolate it and then try to put it underneath guitar music from the, from the early 2000s. I think we've got a hit band here, Phil. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, God. But it also does establish that, like, she doesn't have the maturity to understand what something like, honestly, Cecilia or Cornelia, sorry, Cornelia would understand this better yeah. than better than Irene would because for as embittered as Cornelia is she clearly has experience outside the house <laughs> yeah she's definitely the most socially aware and intelligent of the family but she's also like you said the most bitter it, it, it's what also makes her the most dangerous Phil the right, uh right. they are getting ready for a big old tea party big old tea party but as they are as Godfrey is Talking to Angelica before this whole dramatic pose scenario, Angelica starts trying to figure out the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner. So when Godfrey enters the scene, she asks him, "What? Uh, how many lyrics do you know to the Star Spangled Banner?" <laughs> this is the cream of the crop of an American family, Phil. Um, like they, they came off the Mayflower, the boat after the Mayflower. The boat after. What was the one after the Mayflower? The, yeah. the, the, the Star Spangled Banner is not that goddamn hard. <laughs> well, the greatest thing is that. It leads into, or what leads into it is Carlo is singing the song that's got the same, like, three words over and over again. She's like, what's it called? Oh, and yeah. he says the words again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, by the way, that fade out and fade in, when they fade out from Powell leaving, <laughs> or Powell uh, closing the door in his room, and the fade up, like, it starts on this really high note of, like, Carlo singing. And it, and it, and it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the awful truth when Bellamy is singing "Home on the Range" because I was just, because <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's just you got 
two situations where like Lakava and McCary both have off key singing because because <laughs> Misha Hour is not singing. That is not no. singing. Um, and uh, and then and that's why she she says, "Oh, I love it when words when the song says the same words. Yep. It's so hard to learn other ones. That's why no one knows the words to the Star Spangled Banner. Banner." And she's and she asks like Godfrey, like, yeah, "How many of them do you know?" And he's like, "Well, as much as anybody else, I guess." And then she. Uh, she she proclaims her ancestrage, and she uh she asks about Godfrey's uh, heritage. He kind of replies with a coy, "I don't know," because obviously, him not revealing too much is ends up being important to this story. But she responds back with, "I hope they're not Indians." Oh yes, and 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 now 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 now. Again, we are talking about historical context. This would th- nobody's gonna bat an eye. You watch this now, and you're like, "Oh, Angelica's racist." That's yep. that's unfortunate. Like, very hard to to sympathize with ditzy racist. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, but then again, when you look at uh, you know, current situations, mm-hmm. once again, we're not. We haven't come far. No. Exactly. Oh we yeah. No. Come far. Oh, I know. I know, Phil. I know. Believe me, I know. But this is the one, like, she makes a comment afterwards, like, well, his cheekbones are high. And I'm like, what what does that entail? Like, are you switching? (laughs) Like, I don't... It's either she's into phrenology or she's just, like, or shallow as fuck. (laughs) I think shallow. Yeah. Although it's fascinating because... Uh, you know, I mean, Carlo is very, you know, Eastern European, which I could definitely see, you know, them having issue with as well. So it's, you know, it's always the group that you want that the, you know, the people want to to hate. It's not right. There's no logic behind it whatsoever. Right. But again, and, and also much like Irene may look at Godfrey as like a pity case or a, um, a pet cause. That's why Angelica feels towards Carlo. It's why she defends Carlo so much. Like my, right. Oh, my favorite line in this movie is one that's said all the time. What? Well, stop picking on Carlo. You're making Carlo scared. <laughs> every, <laughs> yeah. every You're upsetting Carlo. I, I, you know, I, it's, I, I wish I, I'm imagining Charles Rogers going up to Lakava and go like every five minutes, people should be saying, where's Poochie? Where's Poochie? <laughs> because carlo does now but i like that carlo is integral to what i find carlo is integral to is the the counteract of how somebody like godfrey interacts with the family versus carlo who is very much the uh the budko um that seduces and mooches off the family Exactly. So yes. it's so it's a very very it's a it's a contrast and carlo is thus very important to that um and he ends up playing playing into what actually one of my favorite off off camera gags in the movie has to do with him at near the end but we get to the tea party things are a popping there's 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 it's not like champagne's a flying but clearly more than one person is having a drink or two um and uh Irene is still on her drama drama kick <laughs> and uh she uh, she uh, fends off the advances of Charlie Van Rumpel by <laughs> going like, just because you have a million, somebody has a million dollars doesn't mean they can put their hands on whoever they want. And he, <laughs> and he does a man line, which is puts up his coat and goes, Brr. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> right. and I'm like, you know what? Carol Lombard is ahead of her time. <laughs> yes, she is. Yeah. 
the uh, uh, a, 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 another very important character comes in, Tommy Gray, played by Alan Mowbray, um, who was an English uh, st- English stage and film actor, member of the Royal Air Force. Um, in films such as The Man Who Knew Too Much, we've talked about him a little yes. bit before, um, Around the World in 80 Days, The King and I, he's been all over the place. He's in Topper. Um, Topper, and in, which was written by the same author. Yep, and he, he plays Topper's butler, Wilkins, and he reprises that role in Topper Takes a Trip, which I first found out about the Topper films from um, a Bob Hope one of Bob Hope's first radio episode where he has Constance Bennett on the show. Huh. Uh, that's how I discovered it. Um, but also Topper Takes a Trip is directed by Horse Feathers director Norman Z. McLeod. Um, so na- so now you have a little bit of insight there. Actually, he directed the first two Toppers. So, And Topper has Cary Grant, as Ryan will mention. Um, yes. There's a lot of reasons to watch Topper, and you should fucking do it. <laughs> I love those movies. Yeah, they're fun. I wish that a studio would actually grab onto them for decent transfers. Uh, Ryan has one that's okay but I wish like another studio would grab onto it and be like, we're going to remaster this movie. Um, yeah. cause it's still like, uh, I think like the best quality version, like it's still like you could feasibly do a better, uh, 4k transfer. That's neither here nor yeah. there. We're not talking about topper yet. Although <laughs> let's talk after the show. I want you back for topper. Um, Oh yeah. Uh, but anyway, in, in the movie, Alan Mowbray is playing Tommy gray, who, uh, is from what we first assume is uh is just another member of uh, of the elite aristocracy just another member like just a you know blank face in the crowd he established he comes from boston and uh uh it, it's asked of him how are things in boston all the beans and things <laughs> yes how all, all the beans still there and you know and how hey is that delightful little uh insane child frank costello still there is he still shaking down other children for protection money i'm sure he'll go places uh boston it's always fun for comedy and um uh he recognizes godfrey and yes. and Godfrey's like shit. I've been had. And then he jumps out the window. No, um, uh, no. But uh, Godfrey really tries to play it down. He, like he calls him Godfrey Parks, and yes. Godfrey's like, excuse me, you mean Smith? And he Tommy catches on pretty quickly. Like oh, okay, 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 I got gotcha. you, <laughs> because Tommy alludes to the fact that he knew Godfrey at Harvard, and then Godfrey has to counter it with, I was his valet at Harvard. <laughs> Which I thought immediately of like college, uh, college butler, like yeah, college butler. That, was college that's butler. that's National Lampoon's college butler. College butler. Why? Why didn't we get that, Phil? <laughs> like it's it's very much just a British butler for a group of rambunctious kids having to go like, see kids, the real secret to life is happiness. Now hang ten while I serve, <laughs> like. <laughs> oh man, this could still be made. It's like a college frat house hires a butler to clean up after them. Yes, and learns life lessons along the way. Yes, and, and and he has to help them solve their big issues. Like, where are they going to get a keg for the big party? <laughs> right. and he's just like, I. And who's going to win the contest with Phi Beta Kappa at the end of the semester? Oh, oh my God! And who's and 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 more importantly, will or will they not escape the punishment of that crusty old dean? And o- only college <laughs> butler has the answers. 
to this. College Butler. And, and and he'll actually ultimately College Butler will sacrifice his own dignity to distract the dean while those two escape <laughs> well, escape with his car and shove it into the river only to discover that the dean's too late. His beautiful new car is now slowly sinking into the river. <laughs> and then the ki- the kids turn to College Butler and say, "Thanks, College Butler." <laughs> And he says, no problem, children. And then he rides off on a horse to help another group of college kids. We got a hit on our hands uh-huh. here. We got to start writing. Uh-huh. You know, Ivan Reitman cried at the new Ghostbusters, so maybe anything is possible. <laughs> but anyway, he establishes the college butler, and unfortunately the story isn't as funny as what we just said. Um, but, no. <laughs> but it is but it is inconsistent, and it starts showing cracks in the facade, and Cornelia's like, gotcha. Like, <laughs> she's literally looking for any reason to throw Godfrey out the goddamn window. It sucks. Um, but um, they basically, Godfrey, through this, tells Tommy, like, look, I'm going to meet you. Um, I'll, I'll meet you at the, at the bar. We'll talk about this later. And as this is going on, Tommy, in the middle of his fake story, reveals that Godfrey has a wife and five kids. Angelica immediately wonders if it was an, an Indian woman. And I'm like, oh, that racist bitch again. Yep, there she comes. Oh, God. And then he's just like, well, I guess he, she must have been a little dark skinned. And I'm like, oh, now Tommy's just elaborating on it. But, but Irene hears this and she is so brokenhearted and so distraught that she frantically announces that she's going to be engaged to Mr. Gropey Van Rumpel. Yes. <laughs> and sure, you know, Unlike the other groper we dealt with in the modern era, Charlie G- seems legitimately confused and scared about what. <laughs> I don't even remember proposing. Like, huh? Wait, what? Like, it's kind of like watching a disheveled Lou Costello find out that he's just married a millionaires. Like, it's <laughs> it's very bizarre. Um, but she's bakes basically. She breaks down crying, especially. But, well, she does it because. Cornelia eggs on Godfrey, like, aren't you going to congratulate, aren't you going to congratulate her? Godfrey goes up and congratulates her, and she just runs off crying. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's terrible. It's, it's terrible. Godfrey is continuing with his facade. There's this amazing close-up that pushes in on Lombard looking through the stairs. Yes. Lakava doesn't use a lot of close-ups in this movie. When he does, they are done with a purpose, and this is one of them. It's this beautiful shot of a heartbroken woman who has had essentially a a uh, a clueless but sincere school schoolgirl crush on somebody, and um and is now getting her heart broken and it is very very sad it is very very touching you can't help but not feel for irene here um and from there we are brought over to lunch at this bar where tommy and godfrey are uh talking and we not only get the elaboration of what godfrey park is all about we learned that he's part of an entire family called the Parks of Boston, a very distinguished family. And yes. Tommy wants to know, I say, oh boy, why are you serving shit? <laughs> why are you serving shit? Wait, why are you serving shit to these idiots? <laughs> this, 
this makes the less sense out of all the sense. And he explains that he had, you know, we, we find out he's got, he, there was a girl, broke his heart, broke an affair, and it left him basically at the edge of the dump to jump into the river to commit suicide. Uh, yeah. But he's a rich kid who sees the disparity of the men living in the dump that it gives him a sense of perspective. Yeah. About, and this is where a man of means learns not only commonality and experience, but empathy. Which seems within the span of a very selfish act, based out of heartbreak, grant you, but a selfish act regardless, is then turned into a chance to rekindle a purpose to go on. Yeah. And he does this in the form of giving up his wealth, giving up his title to live amongst this thing. Now, there's one of two ways to read this. Number one, you could read it as like, well, he's just he's just heartbroken because some girl dumped him, and so he's taking his revenge out by you know staying amongst the slums. But... If you're a Depression-era audience watching this, you're going to find that incredibly noble. Yeah. Because you're going to see this is a person who actually cares. This is a rich person who has feelings. This is a rich person who has understanding. It's not that all rich people are bad. It's just that there's a majority of them that make that make them all look like insensitive dillweeds. Right. And God... Well, and it's his chance to get his humanity. Like, I don't think he already cared about them. He gained that humanity when he saw how they were living. And it's why he's keen on sharing that humanity with the Bullock family. And he understands where they're at Yeah, because he already went through that himself. Yeah. And so his, when he's seeing the heartbreak on Irene's face, he's unfazed by it because he's aware that this is how life is. He's aware. He's aware that it's not like it's, it's not, it's I, look. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna expound the theory of just like look. Like life is cruel and full of harsh punishment, Batman. But <laughs> but uh, but he is aware that heartbreak is a natural part of life. It's a natural part of experience and growing up. Something that Irene has not really done yet, and so he he's doing the thing he needs to do, which is just to let it go. But. Amidst this, though, you know, like Tommy is asking the rightful questions. It's just like, well, does your family know? And well, what what do you plan to do out of this? Um, and it seems like Godfrey doesn't even have the clearest of answers to it yet. Really, like right. he has ideas, and we're gonna find out one of those ideas later. But right now, it really is just like this is an experience he'd rather be living than going through the facade of a life he was brought up in because there is a facade around it, regardless of how real it can feel to some people, there's a facade that is that uh, shelters you from reality in it. Um, and Cornelia uh, comes in on the conversation because <laughs> she's <laughs> followed like this, like the worst, the worst followed, <laughs> the worst followed the best into the place and now it's best v worst dawn of uh oh, and uh, Tommy leaves. He goes like, yeah, well, later. And <laughs> Cornelia and Godfrey 
really have it out because Cornelia establishes like, look, I want you to tell me what you really think of me. Godfrey's like, you sure? And she's like, well, it's your day off. <laughs> you could you could say whatever you want, and he he lays into her with the line of just this of you are a spoiled rotten human being it is it is just like it it is it's it's this slap in the face to uh cornelia naturally but it's also uh she's she's being forced to look at herself in the mirror and she doesn't like it. So we, uh, we established that Cornelia has a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of, uh, um, has a, has a hard time looking at herself. Um, and I wanted to, uh, say the line verbatim that Godfrey says, because I think that it, um, there's a lot to dig into it, but I mean, we won't like spend hours on it, but, um, <laughs> very well. You belong to that unfortunate category that I would call the Park Avenue brat, a spoiled child who grows up in ease and luxury, who's, o- who's always had her way, whose miscredited energies are so childish that they hardly deserve the comment of even a butler on his off Thursday. <laughs> and Cornelia responds, thank you for that, for a very lovely portrait. And we're going to find out how petty Cornelia can get when she can't take criticism because... Um, a bit of time uh, will go on, but like Irene breaks her engagement to Charlie Van Rumpel, right? Because, because let's be honest, this was never gonna go on that long. And as Godfrey is having uh, this lunch, and after Cornelia leaves, he's been having more more than one tall lemonade, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, or as Bob Hope would call it, lemonade in a dirty glass. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, Cornelia decides in order to get even, she's going to plant her pearl necklace under Godfrey's mattress. Um, before this is revealed, though, Godfrey gets to come in and do his only comedy bit in the movie. <laughs> yes. Or, which is, guess what? Godfrey took his Godfrey hat on, and he put on his Nick Charles hat. Ah, yes, darling, I'm just putting away this liquor. And... Uh, <laughs> He comes in with his drunk act, and he comes at. And by the way, he comes in on this beautiful moment with Irene and Molly talking. And Irene is unloading to her; she's crying. Looks and Godfrey enters, and he is clearly blitzed out of his mind. And he just comes like, "Good day, good day." And he 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 goes about his duties, serving dinner to them while stupid out of his mind. One of the beautiful parts of the way it's staged is this kind of beautiful direction by LaCava is we start off at the wide and he comes in. As he comes in, you hear his feet slap together like a soldier each with in front of each person, <laughs> which is which is obviously drunk acting, but it's also like it, it could feasibly allude to just like he's had it up to here with these rich idiots. Right, <laughs> and then as he leaves the dinner conversation, which has, consists of, amongst other things, Carlo being browbeaten again by uh, Alexander, rightfully so, because he for eating too much. Not not only eating too much, 
it's it's also about like when are you going to play that concert and you know angelica's like you cannot rush an artist and carlo carlo turns and looks like his own version of an emo artist who is just like or the long suffering like you know i must suffer for my art instead of you know get a job and try to balance things in life um and uh uh but when godfrey as he godfrey leaves though you hear off stage again, off stage sound of things cr- crashing and cr- uh, banging around. It's clear that Godfrey has stumbled around. And all William Powell does is pop his head out of the corner and goes, I beg your pardon? <laughs> <laughs> Just goes back in. And it's beautiful. And then Cornelia in, in the later scene, then that's when she reveals my necklace is gone. And they call the police. The police start investigating everybody. And my favorite of their interrogations is hands down Molly because she says a beautiful line where she's like, I've got a penchant for socking cops. <laughs> and, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm just like, fight, 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 fight. <laughs> um, but naturally they go up. Uh, the, the, the insinuation is made that it's in Godfrey's room. They come in. Godfrey's still blitzed out of his goddamn mind. Uh, Cornelia uh, shows her hand by saying maybe it's, it's got to be under the mattress. Like she just has a feeling it's under the mattress. They flip the mattress. Nothing's there. And uh, basically Mr. Bullock goes like, you, pe- you, you, he's like, you people, you fucking people. I got, I got the one who sees the pixies that I'm married to. I got the one who rode a horse up our stairs and I got you trying to get the help fired. The fuck? The holy fuck. <laughs> I I feel for every bit of Eugene Paulette's plight. <laughs> it's like why? What what did I do? What apart from making money, which I mean, yes, that day that's the sin. What did I do? <laughs> like and actually it has been established before this that Gottfried has talked with um Mr. Bullock about his finances. The Bullock family yeah. is not in uh, not in a good position. So actually, losing nec- a necklace like Cornelia's technically does mean a lot um, in terms of you know a loss of like that that that's like another piece of jewelry they may not be able to sell if they go under. Um, mm-hmm. And Alexander Bullock is fully under the impression that if he were to be sent away, <laughs> he would be the first peace and quiet he'd have in years. <laughs> um, but so they don't find the. Uh, the pearls um and uh he inform alexander informs cornelia that she better find those pearls because they're not insured um which means that unfortunately if a cat burglar took them in paris (laughs) she's fucked yeah yeah sorry darling can't fucking help you (laughs) not insured not i'm working for the insurance agency not for myself anymore (laughs) and um so some time passes. The Bullocks have sent their daughters to Europe, mainly to get Irene from away from her broken engagement from Charlie Van Rumpel, <laughs> yes. which I'm like, I don't think she suffered. I, 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 that must have been just a flimsiest vacation ever. Um, I, yeah. I'm sorry. Nobody gives a shit about what happened to Charlie Van Rumpel, Charles Foster Kane, Donald J. Trump. Nobody cares about these idiots. Anyway, <laughs> um, and, uh, but they return, and Cornelia and... Uh, Irene get into another tussle and uh, she kind of implies that she's going to now seduce Godfrey to get at Irene. And yes, but, and, and as she, 
says this, Irene goes away to go talk to Godfrey, and there's this beautiful walked-off one-shot of Godfrey washing the dishes. And Lakava is basically instructing I, um, Carol Lombard through the direction. He gives you permission to come to him. Each line, as she takes a step, is Godfrey allowing her into that circle that he had previously told her to not enter. Right. So he is letting her in because this is where Godfrey is basically going to reveal that he's going to leave. Um, but it's but it's this beautiful moment where you can almost tell Irene's grown up a little bit because she's just more confident about like you're gonna I'm gonna make a terrific wife. You're gonna be a terrific husband. And <laughs> Godfrey's like, will you just keep washing the the? Will you just dry these dishes, please? Like this is my job, and if you really want to help me put up or shut up and uh and so he but he reveals like i think it's time that i moved on um and a lot of this has to do with a scene where godfried has shown tommy the dump yes and the dump. uh his decisions come from an idea he's going to present to tommy um and as tommy sees the dump it's him bringing that that Park Avenue set into the real world that Godfrey experienced. And it's very clear that Tommy is able to grasp, finally, what Godfrey yeah. was talking about. He may not fully understand it, but he he has an inkling of it enough to know, this is why you did this. This has nothing really to do with, or at least this doesn't have anything anymore to do with the fact that you got your heart broken. Right. There's more to this. One of the people that talks to them that lives in this dump was the head of a bank that gave up everything of his so that his employees or so that the depositors wouldn't be shorted because of the run on the banks. So he didn't want his customers to lose money or his employees to lose money. So he took everything in there. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds like a fantasy story. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, but this is a nice little story allegory used with basic, a basic construction to tell the story of the depression and Godfrey's, uh, one of Godfrey's possible solutions to help. He's not going to solve the depression. He's going to help. And one of the things he's going to do, as we find out, is to set up a, faci a facility around the dump, which is going to be basically a restaurant, a restaurant nightclub, where the people in the dump now work there. Um, but in order to do that, he's got to leave the Bullocks. He's got to leave the Bullocks once and for all, Phil. He's got to get away from That's this right. goddamn family, but not, but not before solving all of their problems. Because <laughs> as he reveals he's going to leave, Godfrey and Cornelia have their seduction moment, and at which point it's basically Irene walks into it the wrong way, and she assumes that uh, you know I that Godfrey's leaving because he's in love with Cornelia, and Godfrey kind of tries to clarify, but then Irene basically faints. She stages <laughs> this; she fakes a faint, 
faint to faint. And then Godfrey tries to wake her up, and he goes like, "You guys, I help, help, no, all right, fine, I'll take care of this." So he tries to wake her up by like smacking her a little bit, like you know, like smacking the cheek, going like, "Wake up, wake up," and then he finally hits upon the idea, um, uh, carrying her to his room. Uh, to try to get her into a comfortable surrounding, and then she re- he realizes she's faking it, <laughs> and so he, in the and so he's just like, oh, you know what? I know what I'm gonna do. I think this little um, uh, this this clearly alcoholic episode of a fainting spell deserves a nice cold shower, and so he tosses her into the shower and just blasts the water, and it is the perfect reaction out of Car- Carol Lombard. <laughs> from fake faint to holy shit cold water um and godfrey uh you know like closes the door on her and she says oh godfrey now i know you love me you do or you wouldn't have <laughs> you do. or you wouldn't have lost your temper and then godfrey's like yeah i'm out. i'm i'm done like i know like everything just all the things the horse was oddly enough the least strange thing. <laughs> um, but the the firing of Godfrey, which just seems like it's more or less instigated by Angelica to an to an extent too. That's not the most important thing though, because Mister Bullock has a, has a problem. Um, but before he gets to his problem, he has to deal with the Poochie in the room. Oh, Carlo! He has had it up to here with Carlo. Can I now tell you my favorite Carlo moment? Yes. It has nothing to do with anything Carlo says. It has everything to do with Mr. Bullock going like, step over here, Carlo. I'm going to have a nice little talk, just you and I. And they go off stage, and it's my one of my favorite sound gags in the movie, too, is that next thing you hear is a bunch of crashing and then what it sounds like, glass breaking. And Carlo <laughs> says, yeah, I've just thrown Carlo out the window. And before Carlo left, he told me, I have to go now. My planet needs me. And (laughs) and, and so RIP Carlo, I guess, because I don't know how Carlo's surviving that. And we never, and the thing, that's the thing. We don't have an epilogue in this movie. So we don't, we never see Carlo again. I have a theory that Carlo can fly. And he, (laughs) and he flew, Phil. He flew. That's what his talent was. That's what we've been waiting all this time to yeah, see. Yeah, and then, you know, and then Emma Stone looks out the window and sees Carlo flying, but we don't see it as the audience, and that's the genius of Inuratu. And <laughs> <laughs> Carlo Man, or the unexpected virtue of mooching. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, you motherfucker. <laughs> like, um... And now, now, but now, back to the Bullock business is that the Bullocks. He announces to his family that they're fucking broke. <laughs> his business is failing, and he may be facing criminal charges for embezzlement. And this is where I alluded <laughs> to earlier on about like if I went to jail, it would be the greatest vacation I've ever had in my goddamn life. <laughs> He's kind of rooting for because it because even though Mr. Bullock is an unscrupulous rich dick, he is not. He is not written as evil, so he is ultimately the most sympathetic character in the film. <laughs> yeah. In, Even though he bribes cops in the movie. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's where it gets tricky because they do like they, he bribes the cops um, after the necklace episode, and it's like m- misuse of police question mark like how does <laughs> how is this not uh, discussed a little bit uh, uh, 
And then, uh, and, uh, as Godfrey hears all this, he goes like, well, I hate to break the bad news, but you don't, you may not be in as bad a shape as you think. Um, you didn't take my stock advice when we were talking during your breakfast that one day. Um, so I decided to scoop up some of your stock and sold short, sell short. And, um, he used some of the money, um, raised by pawning Cornelia's pearl necklace. So the necklace that they couldn't find under the mattress is that <laughs> Godfrey saw it and said, Oh, I know what I'm going to do. And then not only that, he, he, he used the money from the pearl necklace to buy up the stocks that Bullock had sold. He gives the stock back to Mr. Bullock, saving the family. And then, uh, and then got the necklace back to yes. Cornelia. And he tells Cornelia, you taught me humility. So there's a dual there's a dual lesson is Cornelia learns her humanity from having taught Godfrey humility. <laughs> like yeah. It's kind of a beautiful duality and it, it is this ultimate redemption of Cornelia. And it really again as I said before there's no reason that the worst should then become a a, a decent person in this film but but this film is a, does a magic trick of making you realize that that is possible like that people yeah. people aren't fully monstrous all the way through the rest of their lives you can find uh redemption and like one of the biggest powers of films especially ones we see today is when you can find that redemptive arc it works obviously you know Frank Darabont made a whole movie called The Shawshank Redemption, which is literally right. about that subject. But, like, you can see, like, even in the most, like, stodgiest of characters, like a Tony Stark finding redemption at the end of Endgame or, you know, finding those different forms of redemption throughout cinema, like, there's a... It's almost hard to see in films today regards to, within, in the regards of rich people because, realistically we're in a different postmodern view of the world. Um, yeah. We're going to get to the ending now, really. Um, and it starts here where the critics have said that Lacavas um, peters out on the social message with the Hollywood ending in Lacavas defense. I think it's very difficult to hold to the social, uh, the socialism idea that is expounded in the movie with what you would have had to deal with back then. You do not have to deal with that today. Um, yeah. e dis despite how many people whine about it, there's nothing <laughs> they can do about it, Phil. They whine because they're wrong and they know it and they want to sound big and then they want to carry a gun because I guess guns are cool or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I think the big difference is that the people then actually knew the definition of the word. Yep. You know, yep. just saying. Mm -hmm. and, now, <laughs> no, and now everybody hears socialism and thanks communism because the 50s, the fifth, actually, I, I do attribute that to the 50s really messed with that. Because yeah, be, well. because they because the, well a lot of it has to do with the red list or the black not, not the red list the the red, the red scare the, in the, the black the red list. scare the black list and when I say the black <laughs> list I'm not talking about that show that Corinne on the show loves so much I'm talking about 
the a lot of people being uh, falsely accused of being communist because of a meeting they attended for socialist values in terms of uh, creating better economic prosperity, or in many cases, people joining groups that were anti-Nazi. Um, yeah, so you could get in trouble for that as well. Yeah, a lot of there's a lot of things with the blacklist that have to do with people attending like anti-Nazi rallies. Um, like anti-fascist. Anti-fascist. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, oh, we're, right. we're, you know, mm-hmm. like regardless of the, the modern allegories of it, the, 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 the curious thing that I find about this film, because it is promoting empathy toward the social villain, um, I don't think you can throw it under a bus the way some critics do with LaCava. Because I don't think LaCava's goal is revolt. This film, this film is calling for compassion and cooperation um, in a lot of respects, but also to come up with common solutions. Now, these solutions are different than as to what we would consider now, because the one thing about Godfrey's plan that I find very troubling is because it tiptoes into gentrification <laughs> um yeah but just slightly it's not like egregious or anything it's not like ruining an actual city's aesthetic in favor of getting rid of the poor people because he gives yeah. the poor he he gives the the hobos jobs everybody that you and i don't think any of the people living in the dump regretted losing the dump no, oh yeah no because they <laughs> one of the things they establish in the dump is that they keep getting pushed further and further out because the pile's right. getting so big. So, like, the scene where Tommy and him are visiting the dump, they're having to move mm-hmm. stuff. They're having to move their right. houses and their huts again because more trash from not even the rich, the, the city trash, period, which it's yeah. New York. There's a lot of trash. Um, I'm not making fun of your city. There's just a lot of trash. <laughs> a lot of people there on one island. Um, but uh, 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 so Godfrey has quit. He's left. Irene goes and says, like, 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 comes back down and finds out all about this. Cornelia basically says, like, go get him, sis. <laughs> and and uh, she has Molly go get the car. Um, and uh, they drive and they arrive at the dump. Godfrey arrives at the dump prior, meets with um, Tommy, as who is now his business partner and one of his financial advisors. Um, about creating new jobs for uh, other forgotten men. Um, and they, you know, he, they, they're basically telling him, like, this plan's kind of crazy. I don't think you're going to get away with it. And Godfrey's like, well, you don't know me. Uh, I, I'm man Godfrey, man. I'm the man Godfrey. Hey, hey, I'm your man Godfrey. And then, <laughs> then he just winks and <laughs> just looks into the camera. Yeah, look at that, and that's the end of the movie, Phil. There's no romance <laughs> at the end. It was just all played for that stupid joke. <laughs> um, actually, I love his office because it has a nice look at um, the bridge. It's a beautiful look at the bridge. Um, yes. And Irene pops up into the house, and uh, I love the dialogue here because she doesn't initially. She doesn't like. There's no mushy scene, and I'm not no. I'm not using mushy as a term of uh, disregard or um, or like poo pooing it. It's just she's already made up her mind. She's already made up her mind. Godfrey and she knows that Godfrey knows that he's not going to. He's not. He's not going to. 
put up a fight anymore. Because the last time Godfrey unveiled his heart to her in the, while they were washing dishes, where he talked about being scorned and losing a, lo- a, 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 a lot, having a lost love, she still loves him. She still has that heart for him. She's willing to learn. She's willing to grow. Godfrey is basically Shanghai into fucking marriage in the span of a scene. <laughs> because not only is Irene there, but she brought a preacher. Or or um a justice, justice to the peace, of the peace justice, I think. justice yeah. of the peace who does say like well I could get into trouble with this but I've known your family for so long I'm willing to take a risk for it and I'm just like well that's that's corrupt but I guess it's the least corrupt thing here so I'll allow it <laughs> uh, and it, the movie literally fades out on them getting married yeah yeah and and with with Godfrey kind of looking gobsmacked and kind of just going along with it because it's just like i can't I can't fight this anymore i can't <laughs> i I'm going to I have joined the nut house myself. <laughs> I guess this is what happens when I give up my dump and turn it into a nice establishment and become rich again. I in turn become insane again <laughs> <laughs> just when he thought he got out they pull him back oh in. oh oh God, the bullock coda. The death of Godfrey Park. <laughs> Coppola, Coppola re-edited this movie too. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that's the end. A universal picture. Um, yes. The cast goes up. Um, this is. This movie is. Uh, this was a big premiere deal for Charlie Rogers. Um, this was his. This is one of the first films they released under this new ownership. So this was given the Lux treatment. Um, it was released in the United States in September of nineteen uh, uh, September of nineteen thirty six on the seventeenth, and it cleaned up big money for the studio, big money that they needed to keep going yes. and making low budget monster movies and <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, eventually getting Abbott and Costello in there and having them make them money and then treating them like crap. And anyway, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> the movie has a lot of universal praise across all boards. Um, uh, from a from a modern standpoint, it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and an average rating of 8.3 out of 10. The consensus on the site reads, a class satire in a class of its own. My Man Godfrey's screwball comedy is as sharp as the social commentary is biting. Um, uh, a, 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 a review of the era uh, from The Spectator, uh, written in 1936, Graham Greene, he gave the film a moderately, moderately positive review, characterizing it as acutely funny for three-quarters of the way um, and praising the scavenging party scene. And he finds it to be probably probably the wittiest and noisiest sequence of the year. But then, but then when he talks about the end of the film, he notes that the social conscience is a little confused and he wished for a more dignified exit. I don't know how you end this movie apart from the way you do here. Yeah. Where else do you go? Well, the only other thing that I think you do is have a different approach to how Godfried and God, Godfried Gilbert got how Gilbert <laughs> Godfried and Carol Lombard get married. That, you want to get married? Uh, God, oh God, I, I would watch that wedding. I don't want to watch a Royal <laughs> wedding. I want to watch Gilbert Godfried marrying Carol Lombard. <laughs> That's terrible. And, my man, Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, oh my God. How is that not come up? Oh my God. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. <laughs> um, and uh, that God, um, 
my man Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast sponsor. <laughs> Join our Patreon with my with my co-host Carlos San Padre, <laughs> Santo Padre. Um, but anyway, we. Um, uh, but I would say that the only other way to dignify the ending would honestly be either change the writing of the scene with Lombard and Godfrey and give clarity while losing subtlety or, yeah. or Bacava gives into a revolt movie, which I wouldn't mind. Cause I'd love to see, yeah. I'd love to see the fall of the Bullock family to some extent. <laughs> like there's that, there's that intrinsic part of me societally. That's just like, nah, they're cute, but no, Like, <laughs> but, but then again, the human part of me is what LaCava is trying to touch. And he absolutely does. Yeah. Um, and that's why I don't agree with Graham Greene, not in the same way I would disagree with the Bosley Crowther. I think Greene's more than it's appropriate to bring it up, but I do think that, People confuse um, uh, much. Uh, I, I think they I think they confuse humanity with conviction at times, and mm. humanity can be muddled and uncertain. And this movie feels uncertain about its ending because we're dealing with empathizing with other human beings and there being like a connection with two different groups of people going through two different versions of events during the depression. One yeah. one group is only hearing about it, another group is living it. And this film kind of has this weird, perfect way of bridging a gap that seems fucking impossible. And we talk about today bridging a gap. I think it's I think it's possible to still bridge those gaps, but I think that elements outside uh, have made it very difficult for that reach out to happen. And frankly, yeah. and frankly, also the reality is is that human compassion on the upper class end of things has been decidedly less um, uh, empathetic towards the people suffering. The Whereas it seems like 70 to 90 years ago, there is a better understanding because it's all around you and you don't have social media to shut your eyes off with. Or yeah. you don't have um, uh, a getaway in Florida or you don't have a private island. You are still in the city. You still see the slums. You still see the homeless, the impoverished, um, the suffering. Um, whereas now it feels like it's much easier to get on your big private fucking jet and get away from your troubles and go to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> <sighs> let's talk about the Oscars. Let's talk about something nice and pleasant. I heard this thing uh, did, did well, at least nomination wise. Nomination wise, this is this is uh, this is kind of the travesty. Not a Best Picture nomination, although no. 1937, I'm probably a crowded year. Um, this movie was nominated in all four acting categories. Uh, it was the only film to be nominated in the six categories that it is and not receive an award until the 2013 movie American Hustle. And for anybody who forgot that American Hustle existed, you're welcome for reminding you <laughs> about David O. Russell's American Hustle. Um, that the, the nominations were as follows. Best Director, Gregory LaCava. Uh, Best Actor, William Powell. Best Actress, Carol Lombard. 
Best Supporting Actress, Alice Brady. Best Adapted Screenplay, Eric Hatch and Maury Riskind. And last but not least, Best Supporting Actor, Bucci. I mean, Misha Hour. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, uh, none of them won. Um, no. Uh, the fact that Carlo did not get an Academy Award will never be forgiven. Well, not only not only did he not win that award, but we didn't get. You know, we we talked about the Corinne and I talked about the Lady Vanishes uh, for Shamley, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. um, as we all know, Charters and Caldegat had spinoff movies. Amongst them is called Crook's Tour, which will be reviewed eventually. Think about it, though, dude. If if Misha Auer had oh. won that Oscar. We would have gotten. We would have had a Carlo movie. We would have had Carlo the movie. Carlo, oh. Carlo's eleven. He gets eleven other people to scam their way into another rich person's house. <laughs> oh man! You get Charters and Caldecott would... in that gang too. See, it's Misha Hour as Carlo, Charters and Caldecott in the gang too, <laughs> and then you also have the dead end kids because I think you need some sass in the group. <laughs> <laughs> and and Leo Gorsi fits in nearly anywhere. And then um, for their mentor, um, George Arliss. Why not? <laughs> let's let's see what happens there. Um, so much could have happened. I know. Ah, oh, God. Misha's eleven. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the movie was deemed culturally significant by the United States Library of Congress in 1999. It was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Uh, in 2000, the AFI ranked it 44 in the 100 Funniest Comedies, uh, and Premiere voted it one of the 50 Greatest Comedies of All Time in 2006. Um, as for the public domain status on this film, it's originally thought, and I'm going off of the Wikipedia entry on this because I don't have a legal background to do the legal podcast, um, <laughs> but the uh, film was originally thought to have lapsed in the public domain due to a failure to renew the copyright after 28 years. There are some universal films that technically still fall under this, um, or at least it's undetermined where they actually lie because MCA Universal's uh, uh, library consists of universal titles and Paramount titles, some of which may not have had the copyrights renewed before all these sales. Um, but the book... 1101 Park Avenue um, that Eric Hatch wrote um, had its copyright renewed in 1963 and that is still in copyright. So the underlying work is the issue and there's a ruling uh, of Stuart V. Abend um, when it comes to these multi-layered works that says the rights holders of the original work can claim ownership of the film script but not the pictures if the original book is still in copyright. Films are often based on books that may maintain copyright. If pre-existing work is protected, then rightly or wrongly, it has been generally determined that the derived film is also protected. So technically, this film is not in the public domain. Hmm. But... That hasn't stopped people. (laughs) No, it hasn't stopped people, and Universal has never really said, hey, knock it off. Like, um, and it see because it also seems like this is a problem with a lot of older films. As these films get older, the interest in them dwindles down to um, uh, scant groups or 
uh, single guys in their basement podcasting with married guys in assumedly <laughs> their basement in California. Um, so we're a very limited group. And yes. um, but uh, it's I, there is a solution though. You know, there is a. I, well, I'm not getting married. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean the solution to the obscurity. I don't know about the rest. Of no, no, no. That's no, my own problem. <laughs> Uni- <laughs> Universal has a great opportunity, and if anyone listening, you know, on the upper levels of of Universal, which I assume that there are. Uh, I think if we, you know, when when the pandemic is over and Universal Studios reopens, we need a My Man Godfrey tie-in on the Universal Backlot Tour. Ooh. And the, the set piece of the dump with the bridge behind it would be a perfect thing to go by on the train. Yes. So not only, I'm just throwing it out there. Not, you know. not only that, but I have an idea for that, too. I think we're all tired of the backdraft um, section of the Universal Tour. I think it's been done fire's cool wouldn't it but wouldn't it be cool if you could have a bit of a roller coaster ride through the set of the bullock's apartment and at the oh, and at the, yes. and at the very end you get to see carlo thrown out the window <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah big animatronic carlo <laughs> hanging on the on the drapes it's, as you go through it's a, oh it's a world of laughter and a world of tears <laughs> It's a small world, after all. <laughs> oh, money, 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 money! Oh yeah, as he's thrown out, he goes, "Money!" <laughs> um, if if we do do that, then that means I want some. I want an animatronic Bela Lugosi giving us a tour through the Dracula set, which probably doesn't oh, exist sure. anymore. Yeah, go like, "Welcome, welcome, right, right over here." <laughs> That's that's a, that's where Boris used to drink tea and hold up production like a fucking British asshole, and this this over here is where Claude Rains shit in his bandages while doing the Invisible Man. <laughs> like, ah, uh, the possibilities Universal call us, but yeah, let us know. Also, they also more uh, uh more sincerely because <laughs> I don't think that's ever <laughs> happening. Sadly, oh, I doubt. I doubt it. They need to um work even harder than they already do on getting their library out and more accessible. And you own not just universal titles. You own a lot of paramount titles, titles that I've checked on that you own and haven't released. And I'm not going to bring up the name of the comedian that I'm talking about, but y'all know who (laughs) I'm fucking talking about. Uh, anyway, God damn it. Anyway, though, um, this film was remade in 1957 with David Niven playing Godfrey and June Allison. Um, uh, playing Irene. It was directed by Henry Coster. Uh, this was more of a cinemascope affair. This is in the latter end. Um, Universal, like other studios, trying to um, uh, maintain relevance amidst the uh, domineering uh, medium of television. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, 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 I don't have much real information on it. Like beyond, like it, you know, it, it. It's on YouTube. Yeah. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Filmed in Eastman Color. Like I, I need to watch it. I've never seen it. I'm not I haven't either, I, honestly. I'm not a I'm not a David Niven hater. I just don't watch a lot of David Niven. Um but the Lux Radio Theater did do an ata- adaptation of this with David Niven playing the part of Tommy Gray. That's one of those yes. ways that I remember this. Um, like, if I know David Niven from everything, it's honestly going to be the Pink Panther, but because <laughs> I'm a because I'm a plebe. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was also adapted adapted for Academy Award Theater in 1946, again starring William Powell. Um, 
And uh, there's also uh, a lot of uh, there's a, there's a weird there's a weird episode of Jack Benny that this does connect to, and it's not it has nothing to do necessarily with my man Godfrey, but William Powell's image. There's a wartime era episode where Jack dreams that he has a butler named William Powell, played by William Powell. <laughs> but in Jack Benny shows, sometimes the dream turns in on itself, and then suddenly William Powell becomes the gentleman, and Jack Benny becomes a gentleman's gentleman, and then he turns into a dog. So it's it's very it's a very ethereal sketch. But <laughs> William Powell is very good in it. I mean, he plays his character very well to the hilt, and he can work on his feet in radio. You could hear him playing off of Jack and Mary, and it's very fantastic. Um, as far as the legacy of this film is concerned... I think we talked a lot about not just how it relates to the social climate currently in America, um, but like, yeah, the like, there is a distinct difference between how social and um, uh, financial class is dealt with today versus how it was dealt with then. Yeah. In this day and age, or in the in the old day and age in the '30s, it was dealt with with screwball comedy and treating the rich as <laughs> if they were frivolous idiots. Now we treat them as horror villains, um, albeit with humor, but we do treat them like horror villains. If anybody's seen Ready or Not, it's a strange comparison, but they're kind of doing the same thing. We're going to poke fun at the rich. The, the intent here instead is horror, but there's a lot of comedy yeah. in that movie. Um, if we're going for a screwball-esque comedy of this ilk... Um, I think it's that elements of it are lifted by people like the Coen brothers or Sam Raimi, where you talk about yeah. interplay between director, uh, between actors. Um, the, also the concept of hiring mainly dramatic actors to play comedy, which the Coen brothers do all the time. They don't hire comedians to do their films. Right, George, right. George Clooney is technically a dramatic actor, but he does screwball comedy really well. Um, <laughs> And then in terms of, like, using class as comedy, the darker edge has taken over. We've gone from uh, cooperation to revolt. Uh, so, sorry to bother you. Is like there's, like, there's a lineage that I can connect to with where Boots Riley sees, could, could feasibly see commentary that has origin in something like man my man Gottfried, which is poke the class poke the upper class and then another film will come along and poke it even harder and then eventually it gets to the point of army hammer turning people into horses that's <laughs> that's very much a lineage that you can draw but i guess if we're talking about how I don't think you see the ending to this movie anymore either. I think that's another reason why it's hard to draw the lineage necessarily. I think yeah. I think elements of the comedy have transferred over better than the story itself. Um, I do wonder if you could redo this and realistically get away with it because it because it seems like you'd be dealing with a whole different ending, and obviously you wouldn't have William Powell and Carol Lombard. And you really honestly right. wouldn't have Gregory LaCava either, um, who unfortunately, despite his success, and despite his um, ability to work, albeit infrequently in between studios, 
Uh, he was a rather self-destructive person. Um, on the set of Stage Door, he was known to be drinking tea laced with gin, um, causing a lot of ruckus. Um, one of the reasons he and Fields got along so well was because they both ran around drinking together and getting... St and if you're a friend of W.C. Fields, you are you are being put to the test. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to... You know, have you ever... Have you ever thought you remembered Thursday and realized you don't remember anything, period? Yeah. Um, and uh, so he gets off and makes many other... Uh, not in, A few more other films... And his output just drops in the 40s. Um, after 1942, he only directed one film, uh, Living in a Big Way, uh, with Gene Kelly. And then hmm. I want to pull this up because he was thrown off of a movie really quickly. <laughs> so Lakava has this penchant for self-destruction. He's in and out of sanitariums, too. Oh. He was removed from the movie One Touch of Venus by the producer, Mary Pickford. Because Mary Pickford had gotten into producing at this point. This ostensibly ends his career. Um, and he died nine, nine days short of his 60th birthday um, in 1952. Um Amongst the stories of his latter life that have been purported, one of which was that he could be seen wandering around Malibu Beach shooting birds with BB guns. <laughs> so he had clearly lost it. Um, it's unfortunate, really, because LaCava had a great touch, an invisible touch, if you will. You, you and I spent many hours talking about Hitchcock where, you know, mm -hmm. I just tell you what the hell I'm doing. I show it to you. Like, all the strings are there. <laughs> all you literally got to do is just, you know, open a book and know how to do it. But like all the strings in there, I'm like a puppeteer. Lakava was very much an invisible artist and there's a lot of discussion and it depends on what stance in comedy or, or in, in film that you're into. But um, when you can direct in such a way that the audience isn't aware that you're directing or that they're not being like that, that nothing's being pre-staged or pre-set up, um, and more to the point, can feel like it's improvised and on the fly. It's called invisible directing, and I think LaCava is very, very good at it. Because my man Godfrey feels so spontaneous and out of its mind. You would, yeah. you would, you would be forgiven if you thought that this was an improv movie in the way of an awful truth. In fact, <laughs> unlike McCary, LaCava was a lot more prepared and um, uh, uh, more. Uh, laid out with a plan of how to approach it. The dialogue is delivered as such that clearly there's preparation, but it feels spontaneous. So it tricks you. Um, yeah. And I wish that we would have gotten more. I wish he had become a prestige director the way McCary did or Capra did because, you know, and it's interesting because like for the way you describe these three directors, Capra, um, the, the Criterion Collection essay discussed this beautifully. Capra is in the middle. He's somewhere in between left and right. McCary's coming from the right, and LaCava's coming from the left. Um, but they all touch on that uh, Depression-era focal point. Um, and Capra, obviously, Capra's touched on it 
all well, all yeah. the time. <laughs> like it's everything. Um, it's kind of his thing. Yeah, exactly. It's called the uh, the Capra uh, feel. No, the Capra look. No, the the tu- the Capra touch. That's it. The Capra touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm fucking right. Anyway, um, but uh, I want to wrap up by really laying into the fact. Like I know we kidded a little bit about uh the Bullock family and uh the way we interpret this from a modern lens because it would be easy to assume that when we're looking at the Bullock family and how they act, we would get a little bit embittered because the last four years, if not all the years we've been alive, <laughs> have been a, a clear exemplar of how a movie like My, My Man Godfrey failed to change anybody's opinions. Well, the bottom line is My Man Godfrey is not really designed to do that. My Man Godfrey is meant to comment on the on the moment that it's made and address yeah. it, and hopefully you go forward with that information from there. Um, and I think it still does that to this day. Since 1936, this movie has a message to tell, not just about the disparity in class, um, what... Wh- what needs to be done to address it, but also addresses an empathy that I think is required despite how angry we can be. Um, And you're right to be angry. You're absolutely right to be pissed because we've all been through hell. Um, But I do believe that empathy and compassion will be important going forward. Um, and I think this film is a good example of how a writer, a director, and two stars come together in the long run to tell a story of humans, uh, of humans coming together uh, that is definitely corny, definitely cheesy, but done with such elegance and uh, flourish for the insane that it's admirable across the board. Um, and it wears its heart on its sleeve. It's not afraid to be what it is. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and so, Phil, I wanted to ask to wrap this up what your thoughts are as you leave the world of My Man Godfrey, which I'm sure I could assume that you'd never want to leave it. Well, I don't. And I, I watch it on a fairly regular basis. You can probably tell because, like I said, I I quote it a lot. <laughs> you, and, but, you and Carlo can solve mysteries in some books, just saying. <laughs> I'm just I'm going to be imagining Carlos spinoffs now for a long time to come. <laughs> but no, I really I mean it was very eye-opening watching it like I said again and just seeing how that message like lands how obviously like you said how current it is and and it's so easy to dismiss people like the Bullocks and rightfully so like you said, but I do believe that we have to have those Godfrey eyes on to realize that, you know, maybe we're not all as different as we think we are, you know, there's some of us in there, even though we don't want to admit it sometimes. And I think that's a hard part. He, that's what the lesson that Godfrey learned from Cornelia was he wasn't, he he needed to be uh, humble, you know? And sometimes that's the hardest part is we, it's easy to point out like, look at this, look at this guy, look at that. And sometimes we need to step back and go, okay, you know, maybe I need to to check myself as well. So, you know? and I, I think that's the lesson. Though. Yeah, self reflection, um, yeah. being able to look inward, which I mean, you know, um, 
I talk about that so much on social media. It sounds like I'm a fucking broken record, but I do mean it because there's my own version of that that I've had to do and still have to do. Um, but I think in a long run scheme, when it comes to uh, my man Gottfried and that compassion and that outlook, if if somebody listening to this doesn't want to look upon an upper class situation in that light, that's totally fair. I would then ar- I would argue I'd say like okay then try to look at it from the perspective of even somebody in the middle class or somebody that's different from you in any way yeah. shape or form that's where the humanity of my man Godfrey it extends beyond uh Lakava's touch on social commentary regarding class uh we're at a point right now where class is one of many issues feeling de- facing the world um and movies that are made today, like My Man Godfrey, that address these issues. I'm not talking about like screwball comedies because those aren't really made anymore. But movies that address the moment, the era that we are living in. The last four years has dealt with cinema that only addresses that um, for good reason. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that's been greenlit because there's an immediate need to discuss something or at least to tap into the energy of the world as it is. And a lot of projects that have come out in the last four years have also been tapping into the energy we've felt since 2010, 2012, 2014. Um, you know, a film like Get Out or Promising Young Women uh, or yeah, I, I'll go bold and say even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, anything that you've seen on that Oscar docket for the last four years hasn't just been there, well, except for Green Book. Green Book doesn't belong there. Um <laughs> Cause I'm, cause I'm, cause I'm bitter, Phil, and I need, and I need to have this. Um, <laughs> Black Klansman was the better movie that year. Anyway, the these are all films that touch on the moment in some way, and I'll say even Green Book attempts to do that. I think it does it misguidedly, for my taste. But uh, there are films that are trying to tap into the moment or the more recent memory and trying to surmise it in their own way. Um, with uh with with more recent examples coming to the forefront i think like it's funny that mank is a weird um line to draw like where that movie plays a lot of comedy in for the sake of trying to discuss the current the current political atmosphere um Mm. and uh ready or not addressing class issues within the form of a clue type of game being played in the house um, addressing your current situation is something that film is very good at because film is a lens to what we deal with on a daily basis. And it's a, a mirror for our society in the moment in which it exists. My Man Godfrey is a film that's inspired by a book that is feasibly inspired by the words of FDR talking about the forgotten man there's still a lot of forgotten men out there. The big thing you can draw to my man Godfrey is there's still a lot of forgotten men out there hanging out at the dump. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing we could talk about cinematic theory all day. The bottom line is my man Godfrey is about forgotten men. You look outside. Um, but anyway, I want to bring it back to happy town. (laughs) Well, because amongst all of that other stuff, this movie is hilarious. Yes. That's the thing. It is deep and meaningful, but it is so funny. I laugh so hard every time. Yes. The gorilla still works. 
Absolutely. William Powell's Absolutely. drunkenness still works. Carol Lombard's everything still works. Everything. And again, and again, I want to. I'll double down on it. Like you know, never underestimate a dramatic actor in a comedic role. They can always surprise you, especially if they've Leslie been. Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. Surely you can't be serious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, or or even uh, Robin Williams uh, reversing yeah. that with drama. Yeah. And then going right back to comedy. And then yeah. go back to drama, um, you know. Like there, there's uh, there's a lot to be said about like also the quality of um, execution and also the invisible touch that Lacava had. A lot of good directors we know today have an invisible touch on their films that you don't notice right away until you start digging into their other work. I think the Mar mm -hmm. I think the Marvel films are a good example of that. Um, yeah, the best Marvel films are the ones with an identity have signature moves by their di respective directors, whether it's Peyton Reed's um, punctuant for using improv comedy, whether it's Taika Waititi leaning into a little bit more of a twisted sense of humor or a uh, parodic sense of humor, or if it's James Gunn dealing with realistic family interaction. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Or even Jon Favreau's... Um, distinct approach to the, the, the big and the bombastic, um, uh, an intelligent Michael Bay, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, um, or even like, uh, I mean, Joe Johnston did it, did it with his first Captain America movie, you know, like there's a distinctive yeah. feel to it, but it's not noticeable because it's part of that Marvel formula until you start digging into Joe Johnston's work. So yeah. a director isn't always invisible. It's just that the first time you see him, you may not notice what he's all about. And then it forces you to go back. Um, this has definitely inspired me to really dig deep into La Cava, um, because I've only seen a few of his films and I really need to, um, watch that evolution. Um, and also talk more about him because this is a director who clearly got a short shaft, but obviously from his own, uh, self-destructiveness, but, um, yeah. And also, even though I gave some shit about Maury Riskin up at the front, you can't take away Animal Crackers from me. You can't. <laughs> you you can't. Hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer, the summer Schnorr. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Um, <laughs> Phil, I want to thank you again for uh, talking with me for nearly three hours on my oh, yeah. country, um, which I'm sure when we <laughs> cut it down, it'll be a little shorter. But uh, really quickly, you have two wonderful podcasts. I'd like you to tell our audience um, – who may be uh, listening for the first time, where they can find you and what you're all about. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me. I love chatting with you, and this, is a, this has been a joy. Uh, I do two podcasts. Um, one of them uh, currently is uh, Mandarian Orange Show, spelled incorrectly on purpose. Mandarian Orange Show is where I talk with my wife about uh, movies, television, family fun, vacation, uh, being in quarantine, and all kinds of funny stuff in between. And uh, so that's that. And then I also have an episode-by-episode episode, uh, podcast about the TV show Family Ties, starring Michael J. Fox, of course. And that is called Alex P. Keaton is My Friend. I uh, co-host that with my friend Keith. And um, another, we're on season three right now. And it's another topical uh, discussion because of what Family Ties ends up discussing about different, not just forms of class, but also generational values. Yes. Yeah, so it's a, every episode is a very special episode. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll listen to the show, but I haven't. I, I I've listened to the show, but I haven't gone back to Family Ties since listening to your show, <laughs> and I need to do that episode by episode now. 
because it's a treat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's. I'm so. I we just talked about how I'm still watching the Mandalorian now. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping I get back to Family Ties because I've still got Picard. <laughs> still got. I've still got a room. There's a lot. Yeah, there's, there's a lot out. This there. is why I, I stick, This is why I'm not a TV podcast, guys. But I do like <laughs> listening to you extrapolate um, Alex P. Keaton um, as my friend because. Family Ties is a show that I think is very much of its era, but it's funny how well it's transcended time in a, in yeah. its way. Similar to All in the Family, where you're dealing with a very broad issue that transcends generations, um, whereas yeah. Welcome Back, Cotter is a little bit harder to translate to today um, yeah. without yeah. it without it seeming sad. <laughs> but I love those sweat hogs, no matter how much time passes. I Horseshack will always be in my heart. Um, but anyway, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Um, the next time we have Phil on, we're going to talk some topper. That's not even a question. Sweet. You're going to, which means you're getting a Cary Grant in you. Um, um, and then also, uh, for the yesteryear Ballyhoo review, you can find, um, us at Ballyhoo pod on Twitter and at Ballyhoo review pod, uh, on Instagram. Uh, on the next episode, uh, be ready to be a little bit scared, um, not just uh, by the things going on in the house, but by the man who's controlling it in the house, because Bob Wise is coming to the program courtesy of The Haunting from 1965. So get ready for that, kids. This is going to be a lot of fun. The next two episodes are going to be a blast. And then uh, the following two episodes, um, which will be coming out a little bit later, um, we will be talking Vincent Minnelli with a new guest, and we'll be talking about Powell and Pressburger with a former guest. Um, but until all that happens, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>